All right, we're back in another Sound the Battle Cry. And today we're going to be talking about the New World Order. Yes, we are talking about that infamous topic that many of you may be familiar with. Some of you may have never studied it all, and some of you may think it's absolutely insane and get your tinfoil hats on because we're going down the rabbit hole. And that's what you're going to think. But what I would like to do today is offer you some proof. And it's just not going to be really in-depth today. It's going to be a basic overview. Uh, But we're going to offer you some quotes from some high-level politicians and very influential people in this world talking about the New World Order from their own mouth. And then uh, some high-level occultists and Freemasons throughout history. And they're going to show what the Bible says about that. And the Bible describes the history of the New World Order, and it predicts the future of it and what it will culminate in. And uh, so that's what we're going to be talking about today. It's a basic overview, give you a basic understanding, and it's going to show you the New World Order is real. Uh, It's been building for a long time. It's going to be coming in the future, and it's going to show you that the Bible predicted, describes, and predicts the New World Order. Okay, because the Bible is the Word of God. It's inspired, inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. And uh, you may, hey, you may already know stuff about the New World Order. You read quotes and stuff like this, and you've been searching for the truth. You've been going down the rabbit hole, but maybe you're not a Christian. And uh, maybe you've never heard about the New World Order from a Christian perspective. But it's a very important thing. It's a very important aspect that you may be missing uh, because the Bible describes what the New World Order is for. It's not just for, uh, many people say it's for different things, okay? But the Bible very clearly describes what it is and what it is for, okay? So make sure you pay attention all the way through to the end. Look at the evidence, look how it describes it, and look how the Bible prophesies. The Bible already has multiple prophecies that have been fulfilled, okay? Many prophecies have been fulfilled already. Uh, Just give you a few examples. Um, There have been prophecies fulfilled about the destructions of nations like Tyre, to where it said exactly how it was going to be destroyed and they would lay nets out where the city was. Um, that we talked about um, the four kingdoms in Daniel. We're actually going to talk about this later. Perfectly predicted these four kingdoms, which is like over a thousand years of history and the different aspects of the kingdoms. Uh, let's see here. There's three over 300 messianic prophecies uh, in the Old Testament describing Jesus Christ, where he would be born, how he'd be born, his life, his death, burial, resurrection, all that described in the Old Testament, perfectly fulfilled. Just go on and on and on, okay? But anyway, so there's already been prophecies fulfilled, but there's still some prophecies that haven't been fulfilled yet that are going to be fulfilled uh, in the coming days, soon, and then in the future, okay? So it's important that you know these so that when they happen, you say, oh, okay, there you go. The Bible predicted that. And uh, just further confirmation that the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, King James Bible, for instance. Not for instance. Um, I mean specifically, okay? And some of you might, oh, King James Bible. <laughs> what do you mean? The Catholic Bible, the Illuminati New World Order Bible? Listen, I got you. I got you, buddy. I got some notes back in the wings that completely refute that nonsense, okay? Uh, and since I had to bring it up, let me just say real quick, okay? First of all, King James had nothing to do with the translation of the King James Bible except for authorizing it. Nothing. He didn't sit over there, over their shoulder and say, yeah, you need to change this word to this and this word to to this. He didn't do that. 
Okay, he authorized 54 scholars. It ended up being up a little bit less at the end, like 47 or something. But 54 scholars made, had this translating committee. It took them seven years to put this together. They went over every single verse in the Bible 14 times and split up into three different groups. Okay, There's a whole history behind that. But it has nothing to do with King James. He just authorized it. It's not a New World Order Bible. It's, if it's a New World Order Bible, why did the Vatican uh, have it suppressed and, and burn people who had translated copies of it into English? Uh, why they have William Tyndale burnt at the stake? Okay, the Vatican suppressed it. Why do you think they call it the Dark Ages? Because they suppressed the, the Bible from the, the being translated into the common tongue. So the common man couldn't read it. It was only in Latin. Okay, that's a whole nother show, but I'm just saying, okay, don't give me that King James stuff, all right? We're going to have future shows about that. Now, stay with me, all right? Getting back to the New World Order, all right? I'm just showing you that we're going to show how the Bible describes and predicts the New World Order. Now, before we get into that, let's look at some quotes. Some famous people have said in regards to the New World Order. First, I'm going to play a two-couple-minute clip uh, from famous people talking about the new world order and then we're gonna add, in the beginning of the show we're gonna start to describe exactly what it is all right but let's let them speak we have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order a world where the rule of law not the law of the jungle governs the conduct of nations when we are successful and we will be we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. Okay, so that was George Bush Sr., if you didn't know. Uh, the president before Obama was George Bush Jr., George W. Bush, and then that was his father. Okay, talking about the new world order. Now the next one is Henry Kissinger. There's a need for a new world order, but it has different characteristics in different parts of the, of the world. The affirmative task we have now. He was uh, ambassador to other nations, expert on foreign policy, advisor to multiple different presidents. Henry Kissinger was. Uh, next one is Joseph Biden. He was the vice president to uh, President Obama. Now is uh, is to actually um, uh, create. Uh, uh, a new world order. A world in which there is the very real prospect of a new world order. It's about the future of Europe and a new world order. After 1989... Said Georgia's president. Georgia is not the state in the United States. It's a, it's a country that's right near Russia. And President Bush kept said, and it's a phrase that I often use myself, that we needed a new world order. So there is President Bill Clinton saying, new world order again. Now we have a quote on the screen. Uh, it is by Strobe Talbot, President Clinton's Deputy Secretary of State, as quoted in Time Magazine, July 20th, 1992. He said this, in the next centuries, nations as we know it will be obsolete. All states will recognize a single global authority. National sovereignty wasn't such a great idea. After all, pff, speak for yourself, buddy. All right. Let's continue. And the hope that each of us has to build a new world order. The pieces that are was President uh, Richard Nixon. So as you can see, many presidents have said this. Now we have the uh, former British 
Prime Minister, I believe he's Prime Minister or President, but we'll say that. Prime Minister uh, Tony Blair. Okay, what did he say? Flux, soon they will settle again. Before they do, let us reorder this world around us. So that the problem of the Bush presidency will be the emergence of a new international order. Within the next four years, we will see the emergence of a new international the order. The beginning of a new international order. But today, with Asia already outproducing Europe, India and China are clearly becoming part of our new order. So, in conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, a new world is emerging. It is a new world order with significantly different and radically new challenges. For I think I forget that dude's name. Something Gordon. He used to be litter, the leader of uh, Britain. All right, let's go. Its task will be to develop an overall strategy for America in this period when really a new world order can be created. It's a great opportunity. It isn't just a crisis. That this crisis in the way that has developed will require some kind of a world governance. Good evening, everybody. President Obama and British Prime Minister Gordon today calling for a new world order to tackle our global economic crisis. And the president outlined his vision of a new world order in which the U.S. would participate fully. We've got to give them a stake in creating the kind of uh, uh, world order that I think all of us would like to see. All right. And there finally there was President Barack Obama. And he's talking about that world order. All right. So. We have many people, and we can go on and on, and there's also uh, many quotes you could go through. Uh, you can go look them on, on, up online yourself, you know, and some of them may be uh, the sources of the quote, maybe a little bit spurious, might be hard to, to prove from prime source documentation, primary source documentation, but a lot of them are just, they just came out in the open and said it, like a lot of these guys, they just said it. They talked about a new world order. Uh, either they want one, they're working towards one, the world is changing into a new world order, different stuff like that. And um, there's more in-depth descriptions about what they're saying this new world order is. But nevertheless, the point is, we have all these leaders saying new world order, new world order, new world order, over and over and over again. What are they talking about? Okay, so in order to transition from that, we're going to talk about something that pretty much everyone uses every day and that's money okay so on the so and like i said this show is for people never heard about this stuff or they've never looked into it you know never heard anyone so it's just a basic breakdown but trust me there's a lot in here for you guys that may have known about this for a while there's going to be some other information you may have never heard before all right so pyramid on the back of the dollar bill why is there a pyramid on the back of the american dollar bill have you ever asked yourself that question? Why would there be a pyramid? There are no pyramids in America, okay? Maybe there is someone built a small one. You know, there's a pyramid in Las Vegas and stuff. But I mean a real pyramid like in Egypt, okay? We have pyramids in Egypt, but we have a pyramid on the back of the American dollar bill. It doesn't make any sense. Why would they put it there? And then there's a, an eye in a triangle floating above the pyramid, have you ever stopped to think about what that means? Why that would be put there? Have you ever just thought some pe- a lot of people they just look and say, "Huh, that's weird." And then they never even study to f- figure out something that they 
probably touch almost every day. They passes through their hands and they give to other people for years and years and years of their life. And they never actually sit down and understand why the heck is this on the money? Okay. Well, let's look at it. Okay. What does the pyramid and the all seeing eye on the dollar bill mean? Well, first of all, what does Enuit Coeptus Novus Ordo Seclorum mean? Okay, so they got this Latin phrase on the back of there. Let's look at the picture here. Go over here. All right, so we got this dollar bill. And over here on the left, we have the seal. And at the top says Enuit, my Latin pronunciation may not be perfect, but it's Enuit Coeptus Novus Ordo Seclorum. Okay? And it basically means announcing the birth, creation, or arrival of a new secular order, a new world order, okay? Secular is very, it's a synonym for the word world, ordo, order, order, novus is new, okay? New world order. Okay, so we even got that phrase, new world order, on the back of the dollar bill, on a seal, with a pyramid and an, and a, all, a, an eye above it, which is called the all-seeing eye, or the eye of Horus, okay? And then we're not going to talk about that other seal today, but... um if you'll notice, the number, the number 13 pops up a lot. Yeah, if you look up here, I just wanted to double check. There's 13 bricks, 13 uh, layers of bricks going up to the top, okay? It's 13. And um, you're going to see that number come up later in the studies. All right, so anyways, so that's the back of the dollar bill. Now, let's get back to the explanation. All right, so what does uh, Annuit Coeptus Novus Ordo Seclorum mean? Well, proof the dollar seal is Masonic. What does that mean? Masonic, as in the Freemasons, okay? If you uh, haven't heard about what the Freemasons are, I'll explain to you after in a second. But first, I want to prove that there's a Masonic connection to the seal on the back of the dollar bill. It was put there by Freemasons, okay? So let's look at the history of it. In 1934, Secretary of Agriculture soon to be vice president in 1940 to 44 and 32nd degree Freemason, Henry Wallace. Okay. So we're talking about Henry Wallace in 1934, submitted a proposal to the president to mint a coin depicting the seals obverse and reverse president Franklin D Roosevelt, also a 32nd degree Freemason liked the idea, but opted to instead place it on the dollar bill. According to Henry Wallace, in a letter dated February 6, 1951, quote, the Latin phrase Novus Ordo Seclorum impressed me as meaning the new deal of the ages. Okay, and what he meant by the new deal is he was just using a term that uh, FDR used. He talked about the new deal and the plan that he had, which basically was um, socialism. FDR is one of the uh, worst traitors to in American history. The stuff that he passed is absolutely horrible. The Emergency War Powers Act. Um, if that's upsetting to you guys, sorry, but um, it's truth. Also, he had foreknowledge. Uh, he had knowledge. He knew that we were going to be attacked in Pearl Harbor. Okay, and he let it happen. Okay, that is documented fact in history. And um, many other things we could say about him. But anyways, he was a Freemason. Henry Wallace is a Freemason. And they get together and to put the seal on the back. And here's the quote from uh, Henry Wallace. He said this, Roosevelt, as he looked at the colored reproduction of the seal, was first struck with the representation of the all-seeing eye. 
a Masonic representation of the great architect of the universe, okay? So they, this Freemason here, Henry Wallace, is saying that Roosevelt liked the seal because the all-seeing eye represented the Masonic, the God that the, the Freemasons worship. Who is that God? They call him the great architect of the universe, okay? So it's the, whatever God it is, it's the God that the Freemasons worship, Okay, the all-seeing eye represents that. Next, he was impressed with the idea that the foundation for the new order of the ages has been laid in 1776. Okay, founding of the, of the, no, I'm sorry, I skipped that. I'm not reading the parentheses right now. He, the, the, uh, the foundation for the new order of the ages has been laid in 1776, but would be completed only under the eye of the great architect. Okay, so 1776, a lot of people see that because if you look, let's go back to the dollar bill. If you go to the dollar bill, uh, if you add up these Roman numerals on the bottom, it adds up to 1776. So why is that significant? Well, people say, well, that was when, uh, you know, the Declaration of Independence was signed. That was the founding of our country, right? Well, the Articles of Confederation, it wasn't until, what, 1789, until we officially became a nation. But even if you want to say, okay, 1776, there is another very famous event during that year. May 1st, 1776, was the founding of the Bavarian Illuminati. Okay, you might have heard that word too. You might have heard, oh, you might have heard a lot about that word Illuminati. And you associate it with crazy, wide-eyed, um, nutjob conspiracy theories, okay? And where people show reptilian, people shape-shifting into reptilians and Jay-Z throwing up hand signs and music videos and all kinds of other stuff. Okay, but I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about, well, kind of am, but I, I don't believe in shape-shifting reptilians. All right, but... If you didn't know, there was a real group called the Bavarian Illuminati founded by a man named uh, Adam Weishaupt, okay? And he was a professor of canon law at a Jesuit university called Ingolstadt University, okay? He was a Jesuit. And uh, we're not going to go too deep into that rabbit hole, but just to give you a little background, uh, a lot of people who study conspiracy stuff say, well, that was the beginning of the Illuminati, 1776 and blah, blah, blah. But listen, 1773, the Vatican suppressed the Jesuit order, which was around since the 1500s. They suppressed them. And then in 1776, the, this Jesuit pops up with this order of the Illuminati, which was just doing the same things the Jesuits have been doing for ages, infiltrating and subverting and overthrowing governments of the world. Just doing the same thing. So uh, what it seems to be from the evidence was that the Illumina the Bavarian Illuminati was just a front group for the Jesuit order. Okay, but that's neither here nor there. That's another topic for another day. But anyways, the 1776, May 1st, was the founding of that Bavarian Illuminati. And uh, yes, they were, were supposed to be a group of people. They were a group of people who were involved in getting powerful people together to overthrow governments of the world and stuff like that. Now, just interesting that they put 1776 there. But, all right. So, and then Henry Wallace finishes by saying, Roosevelt, like myself, was a 32nd degree Mason. He suggested that the seal be put on the dollar bill rather than the coin. Okay, so FDR, want, Henry Wallace presented it to FDR, and FDR wanted it. Now, there's, 
a there's so much more to this that I could talk about. Talk about this other guy, Nicholas Rorick, this like Russian uh mystic witch guy, and he was involved in the seal. He influenced Henry Wallace and it, it's a it's a big story. Okay. There's a documentary done about that. Uh Chris Pinto did that. It was called um I don't know, Secret Mysteries of America's Beginnings. It was one of those. There's like three of them. He talks all about that on there. All right. Go watch that documentary. But uh anyways, so here's the point. Freemasons got together, designed the seal for the dollar bill, and then approved of it and put it on the dollar bill. Totally by Freemasons, okay? And you might say, so what? Who cares? What does that mean to me? I'm glad you asked, because now we're going to explain why that's important. Okay? Because then we have to explain, well, what is Freemasonry? All right? We're going to get into that. Because if... We have all these guys saying New World Order, famous people. Then we have the phrase Novus Ordo Seclorum on the back of the dollar bill, which was put there by Freemasons. Then maybe if we study the Freemasons, they might, it sounds like the Freemasons have an idea as to what this whole New World Order thing is. So the logical progression would be, let's go and see what the Freemasons actually believe. Who are they? Where do they come from? What do they believe? And then we can figure out what this whole New World Order is. All right. But before we get into that, uh, well, let me just explain real quick. Okay. We'll get into more depth in, in like their, their, uh, deeper history later in the show. But right now I'll just give you a quick rundown. Freemasons, if you don't know, are a secret society. They're called a fraternity. Uh, their official explanation is no, we're not a religion. We are a system of morality veiled in allegory and symbolism okay basically they say that they have um their motto is making good men better and that when you enter into this uh masonic lodge and you become initiated that they you progress through degrees there's in the scottish right there's 33 degrees that you can progress through and each degree has um uh, certain secret handshakes and passwords and tokens and and stuff like that that you learn and you learn secrets of that degree. And once you learn that and then you, you prove yourself, you can move on to the next degree and the next degree. And you try to work your way up to the 33rd degree, the highest one. Okay. In, in that type of Freemasonry. So, okay. So that's what they do. But, uh, and they say they're not a religion, but they worship a God. They said the the, uh, great architect of the universe and that you ever seen the square and the compass that they have. It's on the front of their Masonic Lodge, and it has a G in the middle. So uh, I've heard many different interpretations of what they explanations as to what that G stands for. There's always an exoteric and an esoteric. The exoteric is what you tell to the masses that you don't want them to, uh, to when you don't want them to know the esoteric explanation. So they say, "Oh, it stands for God," and stands for Great Architect of the Universe, or some some garbage explanation like that. But other explanations that I've heard from those who are um, know more about Freemasonry would be that it stands for Gnosis, um, the generative principle, um, uh, Giza, the pyramid over in Egypt. Uh, another one I've heard is that has to do with the Jesuits, that there is a, there is the, the top, the mother church for the Jesuits in Italy is called Jesu, G-E-S-U. Okay. And it stands for that. So I don't know. There's a bunch of different explanations for that. But anyways, 
basically they are a secret society. Most of the people who join the Freemasons, they don't know of anything bad about it. Most of them join it and it's like a you know, it's it's just a fraternity for them. It's just like a bunch of guy old mostly older guys that get together and they they socialize, they do boring rituals and stuff like that. And that's pretty much it. They go home and 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 that's all there is to it. But as you go higher up and you learn more secrets and you learn more secrets, once you get up to the 30, 31, 32, 33rd degree, then you start to learn some crazier stuff. And once you prove yourself, and that's when we get into the deeper stuff, the more occultic stuff. So that's basically what Freemasons are. All right. Now, many famous people throughout history have been Freemasons, including United States presidents, um, founding fathers of this country, including Benjamin Franklin. He was a Freemason, all right? But, okay, so we're not going to get any more into Freemasonry right now. We're going to get into it later. Right now, we're going to go listen to another clip from a president of the United States, JFK, okay? And uh, he talked about this, and he talked about secret societies, and he talked about secrecy. He talked about um, what was a, sounds like a great description of the New World Order, all right? And this was at JFK's, Address John F. Kennedy's address before the American Newspaper Publishers Association, April 27th, 1961. Okay, so we're going to play a clip of that and let you hear him describe this. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, There is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, 
not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. All right. So he said quite a bit there, and, uh, you know, there's some people out there that'll say that, um, they'll say, well, he was just talking about, uh, you know, the media and the country and the communist and blah, blah, blah. Really, were you listening to the same speech that I was? And uh, by the way, right after that, JFK was killed a couple years later, November 22nd, 1963. He was assassinated in broad daylight, they say, by a lone assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, even though there was no way ever that it could, the bullet could have... Um, entered into his skull and exited the the uh, angle that it did and it, it, they call it the magic bullet theory because it looked like it was he was shot by more than one person so they said oh the magic bullet and it went here and it bounced around and it came out here and it went in here it's it's absolute nonsense i mean most of america knows there was something messed up about the jfk assassination they just they just say well we can't prove who did it and there's speculation about the CIA and the mafia and all sort of stuff. And some people talk about the Jesuits. But um, some people, if you look up the um, the Zapruder film, uh, William Cooper was a conspiracy researcher. And he showed that if you kept watching the video and slowing it down, that the driver of the motorcade turned around over his shoulder and shot JFK in the face. Real quick, boom, turned back right back around. No one even saw him. Uh, and then others have said that someone came up from the ground and a, a manhole and also shot him. So, and there's lots of evidence out there for that. Um, I've studied a lot of it from all the different angles. And um, we can go down that rabbit hole maybe another day. But the point is, is that he was assassinated. What was he assassinated for? Well, uh, there's a, a quote attributed to him that says that he wanted to splinter the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter them to the winds. Some people doubt the veracity of that quote, but it, uh, I don't see why, why he would like the CIA cause they're, they're no good, but you know, the, um, he also wanted to stop the Vietnam, the war in Vietnam. Um, he also said, um, when people were having doubts about him, being a Catholic president, there was, there was actually a big controversy at the time. He made a speech to, to assuage everyone's fears. And he said during that speech that he wouldn't let any prelate or the Pope, any popes, anyone at the Vatican tell him what to do. And uh, that made the Vatican pretty mad. All right. So anyways, there's all kinds of things that there's a lot of stuff involved. There's a lot of books that have been written about the JFK assassination, but I'm just showing you. He definitely was talking about more than communism there. He talked about secret societies, a monolithic conspiracy around the world. Uh, you heard it yourself. Go back and listen to that again if you want to hear more. But anyways, we're looking at a theme here, okay? Looking at a theme. So we got JFK talking about this. A lot of famous people talking about this theme in the New World Order. So what is the New World Order? And uh, before we get into more in depth on the Freemasonry that I was talking about before, I'm just going to tell you straight up what the New World Order is, and then we're going to go into some evidence here, okay? It's a one-world government. The goal is a one-world government 
with this one world bank, a central bank and a currency, which is probably going to be digital. It's going to be digital. Uh, and one military, one world religion with the population microchipped and linked to a central computer system. Okay. Uh, it could be any variation of microchips. There's, there's nano bot technology, nano chips. There's nano bio a- info cognitive NBIC technology. They can inject in needles and they can, uh, combine microchip technology with tattoos and they can tattoo something on you with microchips in them, all kinds of other stuff like that. And we'll talk more about that later, but that's basically what the plan is. One world government. And you see that over and over again, these famous people, they talk about this new world order that we need to put aside our differences, get rid of the borders, get rid of nations and national sovereignty. Like that guy said in the, in there, he said, national sovereignty is a bad idea. What are they saying? Get rid of all the borders, okay? All the nation states, and we'll just have one government, one nation, one bank, every military, and everything. And then right now in the religious world, they've been working for years and years in the ecumenical movement to break down all the barriers between all different denominations and different beliefs, especially between the Protestants and the Catholic Church. And they want to break down that barrier all the barriers so that all the religions fuse together as one and they make a new religion. Okay. But it's all, all the world together in one globalist system. Okay. This is what they're talking about. This is what they've been pushing. This is what a new world order is. And they call it also the great work of the ages. Okay. Now we're going to read a couple things about this, a couple things in the Bible, just to build up to it. And then we'll get back to the Freemasonry. All right. Um, because that's an important aspect of this that we need to get into. Okay. But where, where does this, does the Bible, cause you know, there are some people, believe it or not, if you're a Christian watching the show, you might be surprised that there are some, sorry, my microphone is a little weird. There are some people, some Christians out there who don't believe a conspiracy to exist, but don't believe in new world order. Don't believe in any conspiracies at all. Which is funny because conspiracy is a is a crime that you can be charged for right now in the United States legal system. Um, you know, when two or more people work together to commit a crime, it's a conspiracy. You know, it's just anyways, um even if they don't do the crime, it's a conspiracy. If they planned to commit a crime and they were caught, you can get charged for conspiracy. Okay. But anyways, uh, I'm going to show you that conspiracies are in the Bible and, um, let's look at a couple verses here. So the first one is the conspiracy against the Lord and his saints. This is the main one. And we'll talk about where, why that is and where it started. Uh, so Psalm two, starting in verse one, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The Kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Okay, so a few things in here. Uh, You know, why does the heathen rage? You know, the heathen, the the people that are not Christians, they're they're raging. They're imagining vain things. They're they're, uh, believing whatever they want to believe. They're coming up with new beliefs every day with religion and, and government and any other type of thing. They're trying to make their own rules. Okay? They want to break their bands asunder, cast away their cords. 
they they want to get rid of all the rules. They they consider the rules of the Bible to be bands. You know, like a, a band is like uh, a shackle, okay? And cords are like chains to tie people down. They They consider the commandments in the Bible to be a burden, to be chains, to be tyranny, slavery, okay? Which is funny because the Bible says sin is slavery. He that committeth sin is the servant of sin, okay? But... It says the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So they're taking counsel together, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the most powerful people in the world are working together, counseling together against God and against his anointed. In the book of Acts, when it quotes this, it says, instead of against his anointed, it says against his Christ. Okay, so that word can mean Christ, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, but it can also mean anointed we are called the anointed, the um, Christians, okay? So conspiracy against is against the Lord and against his people, the leaders of the world. It says it right there in the Bible, okay? They're taking counsel together against God. That's the conspiracy. Now, we have that, but we have much more. So let's go back to the beginning, the beginning of the new world order and Satan's rebellion. First Peter 5, 8 says this, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And next one, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, lest Satan should get advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices, okay? So we got to be sober, we got to be vigilant, uh, and we have to not be ignorant because the devil's walking around like a lion. He's trying to get advantage of us. He wants to devour you, wants to deceive you. Uh, he is very dangerous, very deceptive, okay? And so in order for us to fight against him, to avoid being trapped, for to avoid him taking advantage of us, we should not be ignorant of his devices, okay? So we should see who he is, where he comes from, how he uh, fights against us, how he tries to deceive us and trick us so we can avoid that and effectively win the war, get the victory, okay? So let's go all the way back to the beginning. The war begins, Okay, because this has to do with the devil, all right? Um, some people may ask, because this is the origin of evil, right? Obviously, if there's a conspiracy, it has to do with evil, uh, people doing bad things. But where's the, but where's the origin of evil in, this, in the creation, okay, in this universe? Well, we're going to go back to the beginning. It starts with Satan, and he used to be called Lucifer, Okay. And uh, he's not a, a, a red man with horns and a pitchfork and a pointy tail, okay? Let me show you exactly who he is and how the Bible describes him, okay? And it's not this goofy cartoon image that you might think, okay? All right, so go to, to uh, we're going to Ezekiel chapter 28, starting in verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in the Eden, thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold, the workmanship of thy tabrets, and of thy pipes, was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. 
Now was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Okay, so what is this talking about here? Some people say, well, it's just talking about the king of Tyrus, blah, blah, blah. No, listen, okay? It says he was in Eden. It says he's an anointed cherub. It says musical instruments built in him. It says that um, he was perfect in the day he was created. He was in the holy mountain of God, walked in the midst of the stones of fire. That is not talking about this king, okay? This is talking about Satan. This is talking about Lucifer, okay? But before he fell, and what does it say he was like before he fell? He was perfect in all his ways. In the day that he was created, he was perfect. He was full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. But what happened? Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. So he, his heart was lifted up. He got full of pride when he looked at his beauty. And then what? Iniquity was found in him. Okay? So he, got, he looked at his beauty. He stopped looking at God. You know, he was created by God. And only the only reason he had any beauty and any wisdom is because God created him that way. And it was a reflection of God's power, God's beauty, and God's wisdom. But he decided to look at himself. And he got lifted up with pride. He thought he was something special. And he, he sinned. And he was filled with rebellion. And God kicked him out of heaven. So that's where we have in Isaiah 14, starting in verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Okay? That was his name. O Lucifer. It means light bearer. Okay? O Lucifer, son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, okay, this is what Lucifer said in his heart when he was lifted up with pride. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Okay. The, some people call us the five eyes. And then you have um, the pentacle or the pentagram with the five pointed star. Those are the five eyes of Lucifer. He wants to exalt his throne above the stars of God. And a lot of times in the Bible, stars are a reference to angels. He wants to be above the angels, his throne, rule all the angels. He wants to be in the Mount of Congregation. He wants to rule God's people, the congregation. And he wants to be like the Most High, he wants to be like God. Uh, Kanye West said in one of his lyrics, um, what was the song? He said, he said he wants to be a God. I am a God. But, and he said, he said in his, uh, song, he said, um, I'm not the most high, but I'm a close high. Okay. I am a God. I am a God. And then he said, I'm a God. So he said he was close to being like God. And what did Lucifer say? I will be like the most high. That's what he said. All right. But. You shall be brought down to hell. I will, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, 
that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof that opened not the house of the prisoners? Okay? That's what's going to happen. When we finally see Lucifer judged in the end with the devils in there in the lake of fire, we're going to say, this is it? This is the guy that caused all this trouble? And that's what he's going to look like. A pathetic little man. That's what he's going to look like. But anyways, this is what happened. So this was the fall of Lucifer. He got filled with pride. God kicked him out. All right. And then he ends up in the Garden of Eden, where the first people, the first man and woman were Adam and Eve. Okay. And uh, let's read about that. What happened there? Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. Okay. So serpent is the devil. Later in the Bible, it says that the devil, who is the serpent and, and Satan, who is the serpent and the devil. Okay. He is the serpent. But he possessed a creature there as a serpent. Most likely, it was a lizard that had legs. It was a serpent that had legs, and then when he was cursed, the legs were removed. He went on his belly. But anyways, it says, The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. Subtle. He's very cunning, very smart, very um, very uh, calculated in the way that he was able to deceive anyone. But mankind is what he targeted, okay, who he targeted. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said... Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. So he was questioning God's word. Starts off by saying, oh, did God really say that? Because God told Adam and Eve, I'm sorry, I'm kind of starting in the middle here, but um, God created the world in six days, rested on the seventh. He didn't need to rest, but he, it means to cease from his works. He stopped working. That's what it means. Okay. He wasn't tired. Uh, but anyways, God created the world and then he had Adam in there and then he created Eve and he told them, told Adam, do not eat from the tree of knowledge, the tree that's in the midst of the garden. So then the devil comes here, the serpent, and he questions what was said to to, uh, Eve, the woman, because Adam told her, don't eat from that tree. And then he questions God's word and says, yea, hath God said, did God say that? You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Did God really say that? And he starts questioning God's word, planting seeds of doubt. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Uh, God, God doesn't, it doesn't say that God said you shouldn't touch it, but it says God did say don't eat of it. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. So now he's not only questioning God's word, he's outright denying and contradicting God's word. He said, No, God didn't say that. All right, that's not true. He's saying, oh, that's not true. God's a liar. He's calling God a liar, saying, you shall not surely die. If you eat that, no, you're not going to die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So he said, no, you're not going to die. Not only are you not going to suffer consequences for sin, but it's actually going to be good for you to sin and you can be as gods. Well, isn't it funny? Because that's what Lucifer wanted. He wanted to be like the most high. He said, oh, you can be gods. And and when the woman saw that, remember that lie, by the way, ye shall be as gods. It's that, the lie was, that was the first lie told to mankind back then and it's still being told today. People saying you, you can be a god. And verse 6 says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, 
and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Okay? So she saw it was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to desire to make one wise. Well, it looks like it'll taste good. It looks good. And if I eat it, I'll be wise. I'll have wisdom. What, what's, what had happened with Lucifer? He was lifted up because of his beauty, pleasant to the eyes, and is cor- corrupted by his wisdom. Desire to make one wise. The same sin that Lucifer fell by, he was making mankind fall by. Same exact thing. And also later in the Bible, it says, love not the world and the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, it is of the world. Well, guess what? Right here, pleasant to the eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. Uh, I'm sorry. It was good for food, lust of the flesh. Pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes. Tree to desire to be, make one wise, pride of life. That's how the world gets you. How Lucifer got Eve. All right, so I'm sorry, we can go on and on about that, but it's important to note those things right there. Verse seven, and the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And isn't it funny because Freemasons wear aprons. They wear a Masonic apron. They put right over here and it's got all their symbols and stuff on that. And what does that represent? Well, they were ashamed and they were naked. So they tried to make Aprons, they sewed the fig leaves together. Why'd they make aprons? To try to cover up their shame, the shame of their nakedness. What does that mean? It means they were trying to cover up their sin by their own works. And Freemasons try to say, they try to cover up their sin with their good works. Because they give to charity. They do all these different things. Why? So they can have recognition. We have the Shriners Burn Hospital. We do this. We do that. We donate to this person. We we help this. What are they doing? They believe in salvation by good works. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Okay? So, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Okay, so when Adam hears God's voice, he was ashamed and he ran from God. He hid himself. And that's what happens when someone doesn't want to get right with God. They don't want to repent. They hide from God. Verse 11, and he said, who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, the woman that thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. So now he's blaming someone else. So first thing, when someone doesn't want to get right with God and they sinned, they first they're going to hide from God. They're going to try to hide their sin. Actually, they first try to cover it up. They try to hide their sin. Then they try to run away from God. Then they try to blame someone else. And then what does Eve do? Same thing. And the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. So she blames it on him, but he did beguile her. And this is the reason I put this in here is because this is the beginning of the conspiracy, okay? This is the beginning of the conspiracy against God and his people, against mankind, by Lucifer, okay? And what did he do? He beguiled Eve, and she did eat. And what was it? the, the, the basis of the lie? Ye shall be as gods. What's it going to be in the end? Ye shall be as gods. The same exact lie. 
Verse 14, and the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, shalt thou go and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And some ridiculous atheist go, see, the Bible says that the serpents eat dust and there's no scientific evidence that serpents eat dust. Well, okay, buddy, listen. It's talking about the serpent, what? On his belly. On his belly and dust he shall eat all the days of his life. What does that mean? His, he's going to be on his belly with his face in the dust all the days of his life. It doesn't mean that he has to physically sustain himself off of the only food he eats is dust. Okay? Always look at the context of it. Always look at the context. Okay? We take it literally as much as, as it says plainly that it is literal. But in the context of it, we clearly see what the definition is of a word, of a verse, of what something means. We compare it with the whole of scripture so that nothing contradicts. But if you want to, if you have a, if you have a hidden agenda, you already don't like God, you already love your sin, then you're going to take anything from the Bible you can, twist it, and try to attack it and make the Bible look bad. Okay? But you will fail. All right, verse 15, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed and it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Okay, so that's a prophecy. That is a prophecy about the war. Enmity is this perpetual state of opposition. It's a war between the serpent seed and the woman's seed, okay? Now, I don't believe in a serpent seed theory where some people say that Satan had a, ch- a secret child with with Eve or with Lilith or whatever the heck they come up with, and uh, there's a physical seed out there that you know is at war. Now, what it means primarily is spiritual. Okay. Now, in the Old Testament, it was primarily it was physical that was passed on, but it was spiritual. Okay, and then especially in the New Testament, it's a spiritual seed. Okay. Man, this thing keeps cracking. Crack a lacking. All right. But anyways, um, you know, the Satan seed, they do believe in bloodlines. There are definitely bloodlines out there. And um, that is a thing. But when someone says, well, there's this, you know, satanic bloodline out there and they need to be, you know, it gets into the serpent seed theory gets into all kinds of heresy. Okay. You don't want to go down there. But anyways, the point is children of God, children of the devil, they're going to be at war. And uh, the seed of the woman would eventually result in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Okay? And he will bruise the head of the serpent. That's when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. And he shall bruise his heel. Uh, The serpent's only going to be able to persecute God's people. And uh, he killed Jesus Christ, but he rose from the dead. So it's just a bruising the heel. But Jesus crushed his head. The Bible says, For this purpose was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And even the name of this channel that I have, my YouTube channel, Treading Serpents, is based on Luke 10, 19. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Okay, tread him down. What does that mean? Stomp on the head of serpents, bruising his head. Jesus gave us power to do that if you're a born-again Christian. All right, let's continue. Verse 16, And unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth 
so this is a result. This is the curse of sin, okay? There was no sin before this, but Adam and Eve sinned, so they had to um, suffer the consequences of the curse of sin. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam, he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake, in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. So I I believe um, before sin was introduced in the world, there was no thorns and thistles, there were no mosquitoes, uh, there were no uh, diseases or anything like that. That all came into the world as a result of sin. Verse 19, in the sweat of thy face. So don't go blaming God for, oh, look at all the disease and suffering and death and, and all this and poison and all this stuff. That's not God's fault. That's man's fault for bringing it in by his sin. And unto Adam also and his wife, I'm sorry. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat the bread till thou return to the ground. For out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. And the Lord God said, Behold, this the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till, to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims. Okay, there's a specific type of angelic beating, being. And a flaming sword which turned every way to keep way of the tree of life. Okay, so they were kicked out. They, had their, they received their curses and they were kicked out of the garden of Eden. But why? Because the serpent deceived them, the devil. And that was the beginning of Satan's conspiracy against God and against mankind. Okay, God's people. The conspiracy is right here. It's the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. That's the conspiracy, all right? Now, uh, let's look at one more passage real quick here. Sons of God and the giants corrupting the seed, okay? So, since that seed was promised to come all the way from Adam to, to Christ, the promised Messiah, Satan wanted to try to corrupt that seed. And so what they did was Satan and other fallen angels were trying to corrupt that seed by having children with human women. And here we have the account of that in Genesis chapter six. Let's read it. Starting in verse one, and it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God, those are angels, saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. Okay, so. So, uh, it says, The sons of God saw these daughters of men, and they took them wives of all they chose. And some people try to dispute this, and they say, Oh, well, the, the Bible says that, you know, the angels in heaven don't marry, blah, blah, blah. Well, guess what? They're not angels in heaven. They're coming down, and they're sinning angels that do whatever they want. Okay, and if they want to take a wife, they're going to take wives. They're going to be doing all kinds of sin. Okay, they if they want to do that, they're going to do that. They're wicked. They left their first estate. 
Uh, they're not bound by any rules to not marry. They can, they're sinning. It's just, okay. That That's a whole, there's a whole nother show that we'll need to do on that whole giants thing. But anyways, verse three, and the, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that. He also is flesh yet his days shall be in 120 years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And, and some people try to take this out of con- context. Listen, the context is that it happens right after the sons of God came to the daughters of men. So they produced the giants. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, so it was before the flood and after the flood, there were giants when the sons of God came in under the daughters of men and they bear children to them. The same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. Clearly says there were giants. Where did the giants come from? When the sons of God came to the daughters of men, they bear children. They produced the giants, the mighty men, which are of old, men of renown. Those are the giants, the product, the offspring of fallen angels and human women. Okay. And this was a conspiracy on the part of Satan and his angels in order to try to destroy the seed, the promised coming Messiah who would come through the seed of Adam, through the seed of David. All right. Verse 5, and God said that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and the fowls of the air for it repenteth me that I've made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, And then it says Noah was perfect in his generations. His genealogy wasn't corrupted. His family was in order. It was only eight souls, Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. They were the only eight people in the world that survived the flood. They built the ark, got in the ark with all the animals, and they survived. Okay? And some of you who might mock that, oh, how do they fit all the animals in the ark and blah, blah, blah. Well, listen, I don't have to prove that to you. How did God create the world by his word? Okay? You want me to scientifically prove that to you? You want me to put it in a bottle in a test tube and prove it to you? How did Moses part the Red Sea? You want me to give you a scientific explanation for that? Of course, I'm not going to. I'm not obligated to. It happened. God said it. I believe it. And you should too. But the reason you don't, because you love your sin and hate God. Boom, there it is. End of story. Okay? You're not the judge. God judges you. Okay? Now, continuing on here. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But the conspiracy here was trying to destroy corrupt that seed but guess what god preserved it through noah so adam through noah and then it kept going the seed of the woman kept going all the way to jesus christ all right and satan could not destroy it that's part of that conspiracy right there let's continue um all right so now we get into this really getting some nitty-gritty and digging into it even more all right the first attempt at world government and religion Nimrod and the Tower of Babel, okay? So this we really get into it. This is where we see the real beginning of this one world government conspiracy, um, new world order type of stuff. This was way back, okay? All the way back at the Tower of Babel. We're going to read the description of this. Nimrod, we're going to connect Nimrod to, the, to Freemasonry and it, Egypt, witchcraft, all kinds of crazy stuff, okay? It's all connected, but I'm going to show you the evidence, All right, so we're going to take a quick break. I'll come right back and then we'll get right into this and we'll look at this evidence. All right, we'll be right back. We're back. And uh, now we're going to get back to um, 
Nimrod in the Tower of Babel. All right, so this is really the beginning, the first preview of, it was the first attempt at a one world government and religion. All right, so let's go to Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 8. And it says here, and Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. And uh, that mighty one sounds just like we just, what did we just read about the giants? It says, um, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And he was called a mighty one. Um, there are some historical accounts of him being a giant. So, but anyways, verse nine, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, I'm sorry, we weren't in Genesis 11 or in Genesis 10, verses 8 through 10. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Okay, so his kingdom was Babel. It says it plain as day. So now we'll go to Genesis chapter 11 and verse 1. And the whole earth was of one language and one speech. All right, so back then, that's what it was. And it came to pass... As they journeyed, so this is after the flood, by the way, okay? We already went through Noah, the flooding the whole earth, and then after the flood, we have this Tower of Babel, okay? So the whole earth was one language, one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, go, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had made brick for stone and slime they had for mortar, okay? So they brick and mortar. And they started building. Verse 4, and they said, go to, let us build a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the whole face, on the face of the whole earth, okay? There's a lot of speculation throughout history, all over the place about what this is talking about, the Tower of Babel. Some people say, well, the Bab El means a gate to God. It was trying to get another way to God. They're trying to reach heaven. Um, they were trying to reach heaven once again through their own works. They're building a tower with their own hands, their own works, trying to reach heaven through their own works. And God stopped it because God shows us over and over and over again, you cannot be saved by your own good works over and over again. So God uses them as a living illustration. But anyways... The, the main point here is they're all united, one language, working together on this, this city and this tower. They're all, and this was a huge, huge tower. Some people say that it was three days journey around the base of it. That's how wide it was. Uh, verse five, going back to the historical accounts. Verse five, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, behold, the people is one. The people are one. They have one, all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Now, some people say, oh, what's wrong with that? God came and stopped them when they could have done anything. Yeah. Do you think it would have been good? Look what happened the first time. It said that man's heart was only, uh, his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay. They weren't working together to be, to do good things. It was bad. Okay, God wouldn't have stopped him if it was something good. It wasn't good. Okay, and this is the same old lie of Lucifer where everyone thinks God's just trying to stop us and prevent us from getting our full potential and doing all these good things. No, he's he's stopping sin and evil. Okay, and Lucifer keeps deceiving you and making you think that the sin and the evil is this 
full potential great thing that God's holding us back from. Okay, it's a lie. Verse 7, go to, let us go down and there confound their language. Why does it say let us and there? Because it's talking about God as the proof for the Trinity right there, the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 1 John 5, 7 says, um, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Okay, we're not going to get too deep into that right now, but that's what it's teaching. One God, three persons. Let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence from the, upon the face of the earth, of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. They stopped building. Therefore then is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Okay? So, he confused their language and scattered them. And then they divided up into nations and separated. Okay? And why? So they couldn't work together in a one world government to conspire against God to do evil. There it is. So that was the first attempt at coming attempt at coming together under the, the reign of the figure. Now Nimrod was a type of the Antichrist, which would be the leader of the New World Order, and the people came together. This was a type and a picture, a preview of a New World Order that would come. And God stopped it with the the, the um confusing their languages and scattering them. And then they set up borders, and that was to prevent this unifying which wouldn't be good it would be bad and now we're getting back to that tower of babel on a global scale so let's look at that so god is saying this was only the beginning of what they will do the organized conspiracy on earth begins here the goal then and the goal today of lucifer is still the same globalization here's why Globalization can be defined as a process by which the people of the world are unified into a single society and function together. And people say, well, what's wrong with that? It sounds like world peace. If we're all just working together in harmony and everything's just great and we're all just one. Isn't that what we want? Have you ever, ever, ever in history seen all of humanity even come close to working together? No. The history of humanity is one of Consistent conflict, bloodshed, war, genocide, evil, theft, sin, sin, sin. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's the heart of man. Okay? Mankind can't, is, is not naturally, cannot natu- naturally uh, cohabitate with each other. Mankind is sinful. This is why utopias have never worked and will never worked. This is why every time they say, well, communism is good, give it a chance. We gave it a chance multiple times and it ended up with genocide of millions and millions of people. Okay? Estimates of up to 70 million people were killed by Mao Zedong's regime Okay, in communist China. An atheistic communist regime. Okay? Um... This is what happens because there's no such thing as a utopia on this earth without Jesus Christ. All right. So I think it's safe to say that human depravity and its outward manifestation of evil flourishes most in large cities. Where's the highest crime rate in cities? In the larger concentrations of populations. Okay. 
absolutely in the cities. Where is the most murder in America occurring right now? Chicago, a city. The concentration of a large population in one location. The influence and opportunity for evil is greatly multiplied. Okay? That's true. Add to this the prosperity provided by living in location in a location where work is plentiful and there is soon little to restrain any and all outward manifestations of our sinful nature. I think one aspect of the sin of the city of Babel was the fact that they were determined to all live in one location, one giant city with one common culture. Forming one such culture while rejecting the command to be fruitful and multiply, spreading the knowledge and worship of God and spreading throughout the earth would lead to such an abundant abundance of sinfulness that nothing that they proposed would be impossible. And, and everybody tries to see, they, like I said, they try to manipulate it and say, oh, nothing that they, nothing that they uh, think of will be, nothing they've imagined to do will restrain them. Uh, now, now nothing will restrain them to do whatever they want. It's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. You, you, why do you always default to the pro- positive? You, ha- you have this, such a naive view of humanity. Now they can do whatever they want and they're just going to create beautiful works of art and everyone's going to live in harmony. No, their imagination is wicked. Now nothing will restrain them from doing all manner of evil. That's what history shows, what mankind does. The city of Babel equals the city of the world. Okay? That's what we're moving towards right now. A giant world city of Babel. If you haven't noticed in our day, the world is rapidly unifying in culture. There is an unfortunate downside of all our technological advances in this day. It is unfortunate because pretty soon, anthropology, the study of social customs and of human behavior, will no longer have much to study, given that we're all all becoming exactly alike. There won't be any primitive tribes or their customs, or relatively unknown clans and their unique preferences of food. The entire world will be the same all over. And pretty soon, we'll find no group of people living out of reach of a local McDonald's. This globalization started on a large scale with worldwide mail and the telephone, where we could almost instantly communicate with others all the way across the globe. Next, it was air travel, opening up global travel in a way like never before. Now, with the internet, social media, and 24-hour news stations, We are experiencing a globalization at a growth rate unprecedented in all of human history, except maybe in the case of Babel. To put it simply, there is a breaking down of cultural distinctives, and we are rapidly moving towards a one world, one city, largely one culture society. We are becoming, quite frankly, a modern day worldwide tower of Babel. That's that's what we're moving towards. Look all around us. Look at the signs. Look at the culture in not only America, all across the world. We are moving towards a worldwide Tower of Babel. We're all just, they want, what do they want? They want us all to be the same. All countries, all people. They don't even want us to have different genders. They don't want us to have different genders, different sexual orientation, different races, different cultures, nothing. They want it all to be the same. All blended into one thing. It's the Tower of Babel. Origins of the Mysteries. The origins of the modern conspiracy are rooted in Babylonian and Egyptian witchcraft. The ancient mystery religions slash school cults 
which is the mystery of iniquity. All descend from these places, including Freemasonry, okay? Freemasonry, the mystery schools, all that stuff, it all goes back to Babylon and Egypt. Babylonian and Egyptian witchcraft, it all goes back there. 2 Thessalonians 2 7 says, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Doth already work. Okay, so you get the mystery of iniquity. The mystery of iniquity is the conspiracy. That's what it is. Mystery Babylon the Great. Mystery of iniquity. And it's what is it in contrast to? The mystery of godliness. What is the mystery of godliness? Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. That's the mystery of godliness. Jesus Christ, who is God, came to earth and became a man to die for our sins. God manifests in the flesh. That's the mystery of godliness. That is what fights against the mystery of iniquity. The mystery religions and mystery schools have been the carrier wave upon which the conspiracy of Babylonian witchcraft has traveled down through history. It has been called many things like the Dionysian artificers, the Gnostics, various different secret societies throughout history. You know, we could talk about um, the Hashishim, the the Knights Templar. Uh, We're going to talk about the Freemasons. You know, all these different secret societies throughout history, the Druids, many different mystery schools and religions, and they all have been carrying down the secrets from where? Babylon and Egypt. All right. So let's go back and take a look at Egypt and Pharaoh for a second here. Egypt, Pharaoh, and the mystery religion magicians. This is in the Bible, by the way. But first, a little word. For more than 3,000 years, the mystery schools of Egypt have epitomized the ultimate in secret wisdom and knowledge. By the way, what did we look at at the beginning? An Egyptian pyramid on the dollar bill. Egyptian pyramid. Okay, we're looking at Egypt. The mystery school of Egypt have dominated, uh, schools of Egypt have epitomized the ultimate in secret wisdom and knowledge as in ancient times. Certain contemporary scholars and researchers insist that the great teachers who presided over the Egyptian mystery schools had to co- had to have come from some extraordinary place. So they speculate all kinds of theories, and but uh, perhaps it has been theorized that they were wise mas- masters who survived the destruction of the lost continent of Atlantis and made their way. So s- some people say, and who knows, maybe there was some some place called Atlantis uh, before the flood came uh, in Noah's day and and wiped everything out. Maybe there was some place called Atlantis. A lot of these people in mystery school seem to believe in it. And um, it was a place where they had a lot of knowledge of, of um, magic, witchcraft, stuff like that. All right, so they were wise masters who survived the destruction of the lost continent of Atlantis and made their way to the early civilization of Egypt where they helped elevate it to a greatness far in advance of other cultures of that era. The Egyptian god Osiris was supposed to be the founder of the mystery schools and raised the primitive Egyptian standard of living to a remarkable degree. Okay, this is what the, the, they say about Osiris. Okay, he was one of the famous gods that they worship. Egyptians worshiped Osiris. Even many conservative scholars of the history of religion have a sense that the mystery schools of Egypt contain within their teachings a particular knowledge that came, if not from prehistoric times, from ancient times. The earliest human records legible, the pyramid texts of Egypt, from dated around 2400 to 2300 BC, contain many prayers 
and it is apparent that the prayers were used in these texts as magical formulas and spells. So there might be earlier human records by now. I don't know. But as far as when I put together this, these notes, which was a couple of years ago, but these are supposed to be the earliest records, human's records. It's one of the earliest, if it is not the earliest human records, but one of the earliest records in mankind's history were magical formulas and spells. They were witchcraft. Some of the first things that were written down were for witchcraft, and it was found where? In Egypt. Okay. The oldest version, so we're, why are we talking about this? Because we're talking about Egypt. The conspiracy goes all the way back to Egypt because we got an Egyptian pyramid on the dollar bill talking about the New World Order. That's why we're talking about it. So what's with Egypt? Okay, so they found, they got these magical formulas and spells on these pyramid texts in Egypt. And the oldest version consists of 228 spells and comes from the Pyramid of Unas, who was the last king of the 5th dynasty. Kurt Sethi's first edition of the pyramid texts contained 714 distinct spells. After this publication, additional spells were discovered, bringing the total to 759. No single collection uses all recorded spells. Okay, so there's a lot of them. 759 magical spells. The spells or utterances of the pyramid text are primarily concerned with protecting the pharaoh's remains reanimating his body after death and helping him ascend to the heavens, which are the emphasis of the afterlife during the old kingdom. The spells delineate all of the ways the Pharaoh could travel, including the use of ramps, stairs, ladders, and most importantly, flying. The spells could also be used to call the gods to help, even threatening them if they did not comply. Okay, so there's a bunch of witchcraft, magical spells back in these ancient texts from Egypt. All right, and they had some other thing, weird stuff in there too, something called the Cannibal Hymn, and it talks about them eating gods and stuff. It's some some sick stuff, some pretty wicked evil stuff. All right, and witchcraft is evil. All right, so let's continue on here. Um, so in the Bible, the Bible actually talks about witches in ancient Egypt. Pharaoh used them. He used magicians and sorcerers, okay? So let's look at that. Uh, Exodus chapter 7. Starting in verse 8, there was a showdown of Moses and Aaron with Moses and Aaron against Pharaoh and his magicians. So let's look at that. Verse 8, and the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh shall speak unto you, saying, Show a miracle for you, then thou shalt say unto Aaron, Take thy rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. And Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh, and they did so, as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. Okay, so Aaron cast down his rod, and it became a serpent. That was a miracle that God performed. All right? But then look what happens in verse 11. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. Now the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. Okay, so they, these magicians, these sorcerers were actually so powerful in Egypt that they were able to counterfeit a miracle of God of turning a snake into a stick into a snake. Pretty amazing stuff. All right. But in the end, Aaron's rod ate the other snakes. It won the battle. But the point is this, that 
witchcraft and magic is bad, but it's not fake. It is real. There is power in it. They do have the power to do things, and the Bible specifically describes it and warns against it. Okay? And this is how powerful, though. These are the most powerful sorcerers in the world at that time in Egypt, okay? Egypt was the center for witchcraft in the world, okay? They even still, like I said, they're still talking about Egypt today, okay, and their secrets. The occult, the mystery schools, the masons, all trace its own history back to the Tower of Babel. They claim Nimrod was the greatest man to ever live and the Masons claim that he was the greatest Mason to ever live after the flood. Okay, so we're going to talk about Nimrod after that. But first, before the flood, the Masons associate Tubal-Cain with the origins of the original Mason. He invented metalworking, blacksmithing, etc. He was the seventh generation descended down from Adam via Cain. All right, so I'm just going to read that real quick. Tubal-Cain is listed here in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4, uh, 22, all right? Let's look at this. Genesis 4, 22. And Lamech said unto his wives, oh, no, I'm sorry. Verse 22. And Zillah, she also bare Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. All right, so. There's Tubal-Cain, and he was an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron, making things out of brass and iron. A blacksmith, metalworking, okay? Which could mean tools, weapons, musical instruments, many different things, okay? But the the Freemasons claim Tubal-Cain was a mason. All right, let's read what the masons, and like I said, I call this show in their own words. Let's read what the Freemasons say in their own words about Tubal-Cain. Tubal-Cain. He was the inventor. This is a quote from Albert Mackey. Famous, well-known, well-respected Freemason. And a Masonic historian, Albert Mackey, from his book Lexicon of Freemasonry, page 361, says this about Tubal-Cain. He was the inventor of edge tools. And introduced many arts into society, which tended towards his improvement, its improvement in civilization. Tubal-Cain is the Vulcan of the pagans. Okay, so hold that thought. Okay, that he said Tubal-Cain is Vulcan. So after this, we're going to look at who Vulcan is. But Tubal-Cain is the Vulcan of the pagans and is thought to have been closely connected with ancient Freemasonry. So we got the, right there, the Freemasons admit that Tubal-Cain is connected, closely connected with ancient Freemasonry. Faber says that, quote, all the most remarkable ancient buildings of Greece, Egypt, and Asia Minor were ascribed to Cabarian or Cyclopean Masons, the descendants of Vulcan, Dubalkan, the god Balkan, or Tubal-Cain. Okay, so what does that mean? They're saying all the most remarkable buildings, ancient buildings of Greece, and Egypt and Asia Minor were ascribed to descendants of Vulcan, Tubal-Cain, okay? The descendants of Tubal-Cain supposedly built all the greatest buildings in the greatest civilizations in the world. This is what they're saying. 
Oliver says, In after times, Tubal-Cain, under the name of Vulcan and his Cyclops, figured as workers in metals and inventors of the mysteries. And hence, it is probable that he was the hierophant of a similar institution in his day, copied from the previous system of Seth and applied to the improvement of schemes more adapted to the physical pursuits of the race to which he belonged. For these reasons, Tubal-Cain has been consecrated among Masons as of the present day as an ancient brother. Okay, they call Tubal-Cain an ancient brother. The Freemasons did. His introduction of the arts of civilization having given the first value to property. Tubal-Cain has been considered among Masons as a symbol of worldly possessions. Albert Mackey, Lexicon of Freemasonry. There it is. Famous Freemason Albert Mackey says, Tubal-Cain, ancient brother of the Freemasons. And then he also said, Tubal-Cain is Vulcan. So who is Vulcan? Well, let's read. From the book, Symbolism in Greek Mythology, Human Desire and Its Transformations by um, P.D.L. Vulcan was a sun deity who was associated with fire, thunderbolts, and light. The festival in honor of him was called... Sorry, you get this stuff out of here. Get out of here. No, I'm not going to upgrade. Get away from me. All right. Sorry about that. Vulcan. Sorry. The festival in honor of him was called the Vulcania, in which human sacrifices were offered. Whoa, whoa, whoa now. Do you see where I'm going with this? I hope you do, because the evidence is all here. Tubal-Cain is Vulcan, and Vulcan was worshipped with human sacrifice. Let's read more about Vulcan. According to Paul D.L., so that's a word the book, Paul D.L., he bears a family relationship to the Christian devil. Now they're associating with the devil. It is fascinating to know that he married Venus, another name for Lucifer or the devil. DL also suggests that Vulcan, Icarus, and Prometheus are symbolic of the intellect in open rebellion against the spirit. Okay? So, Freemasons say, Tubal-Cain is their ancient brother. Tubal-Cain is Vulcan. Vulcan is worshipped with human sacrifice and associated with the devil. Therefore, the, the Freemasons associate one of the, their most ancient mason as a god to which was committed human sacrifice, the worship of which would involve human sacrifice. Think about that. Yeah, that's right. That's who the Freemasons worship. Let's continue here. In Masonry, Tubal-Cain is the name of the password for the Master Mason, the third degree. Listen to what occultist and Mason Manly Palmer Hall has to say. In his own words, Manly P. Hall, and I already know the defense of this, by the way. They try to say, Lucifer, he's talking about Lucifer, but, you know, it means something good, and it means light bearer, so that's okay, and it doesn't really mean the devil, and blah, blah, blah. That's all a bunch of hogwash, and they're just trying to explain it away. Lucifer is the devil. He's clearly described as so in the Bible, in Ezekiel chapter 28, in Isaiah chapter 14. Okay? The context, it shows the devil. Historic Christian teaching shows that through all the great Baptist and Protestant commentators. I'm excluding Catholics because they're not Christian, okay? 
They all said Lucifer. He's the devil. Don't try to twist it, Freemason. That's who it is. All right. Manly P. Hall, one of the greatest, well-respected. I don't think he's great. They do. Okay. They say he is one of the greatest historians, uh, a great respected authority on Freemasonry. Manly P. Hall, 33rd degree Freemason. He wrote in his book, The Lost Keys of Freemasonry, chapter four, said this. When the Mason learns that the key to the warrior on the block is the proper application of the dynamo of living power, he has learned the mastery of his craft. The seething energies of Lucifer are in his hands. And before he may step onward and upward, he must prove his ability to properly apply energy. He must follow in the footsteps of his forefather, Tubal-Cain, who with the mighty strength of the war god hammered his sword into a plowshare. And that, oh man, there's so much with this. So, first of all, um, let's see, the picture is still there. Oh man, the picture is not in there. I'll, have to, I'll get it after. Um, so this quote though, about this quote. First of all, he talks about Lucifer in association with Freemasonry. But beyond that, he's associating Lucifer and Tubal-Cain in the same paragraph, okay? Not good for Tubal-Cain, but Freemasons are associating, they're talking about the seething energies of Lucifer are in his hands. What is this? Why are Freemasons talking about this? And then, here's the next thing about Tubal-Cain. We're almost done about Tubal-Cain. We're going to move on to Nimrod in one second, okay? There is also a sexual connotation associated with Vulcan and Tubal-Cain. For Masons who wish to conceal their membership from non-Masons, but still advertise it to their Lodge brothers, there is a special pin or tie tack they can wear. It looks like an upside down golf club with two balls near the top. Many people assume the person is a golfing enthusiast, but it is actually a visual Masonic pun. This is called the two ball cane and is a pun on the secret password of a master Mason. Tubal cane. It is an obvious, it's, yeah, it's a pun on the word tubal cane. Two ball cane. It is all an all too obvious pun on the god of masonry, lowercase g, the male reproductive organ. It's a phallic symbol. Masons are involved in sex worship and sun worship. This is the same pagan worship that has been around for thousands of years back in Egypt and Babylon. Okay, let me show you this symbol. Okay, let me go look this up real quick. Where are we at? Let's go here. Google it. All right. Tubal, oh, they put the little dash in there. I didn't mean to. Tubal cane. All right. Where is it? Here it is. There it is. Okay. This symbol right here. This symbol right here is the tubal cane symbol. Okay. Two balls and a cane. You figure it out. You know what they're representing there. All right. That's that symbol. All right. And, uh, excuse me. So, there you go. There's the tubal cane thing. It's all involved in, in this pagan Egyptian uh, sex and sun worship. Goes back to Egypt and Babylon. Uh, but they say tubal cane is, a, is, a, is their ancient brother. Okay. And he's Vulcan. Worship with human sacrifice. All right, now let's continue on here. Nimrod, founder of mystery religions and Babel. 
All right, so after the flood, we got Nimrod. And here's a quote from Albert Mackey again, 33rd degree masonry, uh, Freemason, from his book, The History of Freemasonry, Volume 1, page 63. This is what Albert Mackey said about Nimrod in their own words of the Freemasons. Okay? Not a conspiracy theory, people. Listen, pay attention. This isn't a conspiracy theory. It is fact. Conspiracy fact. Here's the quote. The universal sentiment of the Masons of the present day is to confer upon Solomon, king of Israel, the honor of being their first grand master. But the legend of the craft, by the way, they call Freemasonry the craft, capital C. That just made me think of something else. Oh, what was I going to say about the last thing, though? Tubal Cain. It's uh, Tubal Cain, Lucifer. Oh, oh, I remember what I was going to say. He he says uh, he must follow in the footsteps of his forefather, Tubal Cain, who will, with mighty the strength of the war god, hammered his sword into a plowshare. Do you know, this? Is, we could do a whole nother show on this. Go look up, if you've never seen this, the Denver International Airport. Go look up the murals in the Denver International Airport. There's all kinds of really creepy, weird artwork in the Denver International Airport which they might have covered up some of it now, but you can see pictures of it. And it's all depicting stuff about the New World Order. And in that painting, it shows oppressive, uh, an oppressive regime with swords looking like Nazis and stuff. And then there's like this Antichrist figure, all the cultures of the world coming together and an Antichrist figure, and he's hammering the swords into plowshare. That's plowshares. That's the symbol for the United Nations. That's the symbol for the one world government, the new world order, is hammering the swords into plowshares. It's symbolizing an era of peace, but it's an era of false peace. Because the Bible says, when they shall say peace, peace, then sudden destruction will come upon them. It's going to be a false peace of of a golden age, right? So that's a whole other thing. But just wanted to say that sword into plowshare thing, they were talking about that right there. All right. Now back to Nimrod. Okay, Nimrod, the legend of the craft had long before, though there was a tradition of the temple extant, bestowed, at least by implication, that the that title upon Nimrod, king, the king of Babylonia and Assyria. Okay? It says that the sentiment of the Masons of the present day is to confer upon Solomon. They said it's to confer upon Solomon the honor of being their first grandmaster. But Albert Mackey says, no. He says, the legend of the craft says that before, long before, Nimrod was the first grandmaster of Freemasonry. It had attributed the first organization of a fraternity of craftsmen to him. The first organization of a fraternity of craftsmen to him, to Nimrod. In saying that he gave a charge to the workmen whom he sent to assist the king of Nineveh in building his cities. Okay? So he put together this fraternity of craftsmen. That is to say, he framed for them a constitution. And in the words of the legend, quote, This was the first time that ever Masons had any charge of his science. It was the first time 
that the craft were organized into a fraternity, working under a constitution or body of laws. And as Nimrod was the autocratic maker of these laws, it results as a necessary consequence that the first legislator, their first legislator, legislating with dictatorial and unrestricted sovereign power, was also their first grand master. Wow. Wow. They just admitted it. Albert Mackey just admitted it. He said, Nimrod is the first grandmaster of Freemasonry. I didn't say it. I didn't come up with some wacky theory because I'm, I'm some crazy, wacky, f- fundamentalist Christian preacher just making up crazy pre- uh, theories. He said it himself. Nimrod's the first grandmaster. The one who was over the Tower of Babel in charge of that construction. The one who was a mighty fighter, a hunter before the Lord involved in this. That, that uh, What did God do to that? The building that he was in charge of the construction of, he stopped it. So God doesn't approve of Nimrod. Okay. If you are a Christian, a professing Christian and a Freemason, you can't be. Okay. You cannot be a Freemason and a Christian. And this is one of the reasons. There's many reasons, but this is one reason, okay? You have the most, some of the most well-respected Masonic historians saying that Nimrod was the first grandmaster of Freemasonry and God stopped the building of his tower, Nimrod's tower, the Tower of Babel, as rebellion against God. And you want to be part of an organization that has, recognizes Nimrod as its first grandmaster? And, and, and before him, Tubalcane, absolutely not biblical whatsoever and is not pleasing to God. Okay? Cannot be a Christian and a Freemason. And neither can you be a politician holding office without being a traitor either. We'll get into that later. <clears throat> Actually, we'll get into it after this next paragraph. <laughs> According to the encyclopedia... So that was from uh, The History of Freemasonry, Volume 1, page 63, Albert Mackey. According to the Encyclopedia of Freemasonry, the legend of the craft in the old constitutions refers to Nimrod as one of the founders of Masonry. Okay, here's the last proof of this. Quote, thus in the York Manuscript from 1600 AD, we read, At ye making of ye Tor of Babel, there was a Masonry, first much esteemed of, and the king of Babylon it called Nimrod, was a mason himself, and loved well masons. Okay, however, he does not figure in the current rituals. They've taken Nimrod out of the current rituals. I wonder why. He probably is in the current rituals. He's just, the higher up you get, is more secret. But they don't want to openly admit it anymore. They openly admitted it before. Now they're trying to hide it. Okay, as far back as 1600 AD, they were saying, yeah, Nimrod was a mason. He was the first Mason, the king of Babylon. There it is, okay? Okay, now after this, we're going to get into more about Nimrod and who he was, that he was deified as a god and stuff like that. But before we get into that, just a little fact about Freemasonry, all right? They take an oath to, they swear oaths in every degree that they're in, but they swear oaths to um, help out fellow, they call them brothers, right? Fellow 
brethren of the craft and fellow masons if they get into trouble. And uh, let's say, for instance, there's a judge who's a Freemason and the defendant uh, in a court case is a Freemason. And the, the defendant can do the Masonic call of distress. He puts his hands up and does he does his little funky chicken wing thing, right? And then the judge recognizes that. And as soon as he knows he's a Mason, he's obligated to help him. He's obligated to get him off the hook, except in supposedly cases of murder and treason. Everything else, you're supposed to help him get off the hook if he asks for your help. But then if you continue to study, it gets really corrupt and murder and treason, who cares? They throw that out the window too. The bottom line is their oath, their Freemasonic oath supersedes the oath they swear on the United States Constitution. It supersedes it. So what do you have? Complete corruption. That's why you have tons of, why, you know why, you know why I know there's so much corruption in this country? Because there's people, there's Freemasons in, that are lawyers, judges, politicians, high-level business, media, military, all over the place, Freemasons. And they're all patting each other on the back, doing backroom favors for each other. There's Freemasons that are Democrats and Republicans. And behind closed doors, they're all on the, the same side. Okay? It's all a show. It's an illusion of democracy. The two-party system is a farce. You need to wake up. It's false. It's, it's an illusion. The wool's been pulled over your eyes. It's a big game. This world is a theater. And all these people are puppets on a stage. Being pulled by the master of the puppets in their on their strings. Okay? On his strings. That's all it is. It's just an illusion. And you're fooled by it. Okay? Like George Carlin, the, the famous comedian, said, It's a big club and you ain't in it. Okay. Now, we could go on and on and on about Freemasonry. In fact, I found a book the other day, which I did not bring home with me. I do not bring. I've been falsely accused of that, of bringing bad books in my house. I don't. I don't bring them in my house. And uh, I leave them outside of my house. Either I leave them at the store, I look at them online, but I don't bring them in, in my house. And uh, anyways, especially if you've got a smartphone, you can take pictures of the book. So I took some pictures of this. It was a Masonic heirloom Bible and um, had a lot of crazy information in there in the introduction of it. So uh, maybe I can expose some of that stuff in there sometime. But uh, anyway, what I'm saying is there's a ton of stuff to expose when it comes to Freemasonry. But um, the point here is... What do we start off by looking at? The New World Order, they're all talking about this. The New World Order is talking about that on the back of the dollar bill. There's Egyptian pyramid there. There's all-seeing eye. It was put there by Freemasons. Freemasons are connected to Egypt. They said that it goes back to Nimrod and Tubal-Cain. Tubal-Cain is Vulcan being worshipped with human sacrifice. Egypt is filled with witchcraft. You see what I'm saying here? These are who the Freemasons descend from. These are the ones who want the New World Order. Are you starting to see it? Those are the ones that want the New World Order. Okay? The ones who, dis- who say they descend from Nimrod and Tubal-Cain. Okay? So let's continue. 
more about Nimrod. Nimrod was actually deified. He was made into a god uh, as Baal and Moloch, etc. Different forms. He's made into different names and different gods, okay? And you can get in there. And I'm not just looking. I haven't just looked at, you know, Alexander Hislop's book, The Two Babylons. I know that people say there's problems with the scholarship in that. A lot of it is, that's not true. It's an attack on him. But I've studied from other sources, and there are many ancient historical sources, including uh, Josephus. There's other ones that all confirm the parallel gods, because the, the 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 basic premise is that the name Nimrod, this god, was known by many different names in different cultures in Egypt, in Babylon, in uh, in Greece, in Rome, and stuff like that. They all just went by different names. It's the same retelling. It's a retelling of the same stories over and over again. Okay. And there's much proof out there. Okay. But Nimrod was deified as an, into a God. He has been associated with Bel slash Marduk kind of became the same God, but he was associated with Bel, which is Baal. Okay. And I say Baal. I know the proper pronunciation is like Baal, but we'll just say Baal. It's easier. All right. He's been associated with Baal, Baal worship. If you look at that, if you look at study the etymology of the word, what it means, Bel, it means Lord. Ba- it's the same thing as Baal worship. Then there is Moloch slash Molech, which people offered children in the fire to, which is the same worship used for Saturn slash Kronos. Okay? Uh, Kronos in Greece, Saturn in Rome. And Baal, Haman, which is the Carthage, well, uh, the deity that was wor- worshipped in Carthage, which is was in um, the Phoenician territory. It was a Phoenician god. Baal, it's a form of Baal worship, okay? It's the same type of thing. They worshipped, they did human sacrifice, the Carthaginians did, to Baal, okay? Form of Baal worship. It's the same thing, same worship was used to worship Saturn and Kronos, Moloch, Baal, all had the human sacrifice. Babies and children were offered in the fire, burned to these gods, okay? And Nimrod became associated with Baal, Baal worship, okay? So why do I say that? Because Baal worship is in the Bible. Consistently described in the Bible, many times described and consistently condemned as evil. All right, and why would it be evil? Uh, Try human sacrifice. Oh, wait, where did we hear that before? Oh, that's right, Tubal, Cain, and Vulcan. So let's continue. Numbers chapter 25 Starting in verse 1, And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the gods, uh, I'm sorry, they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor. Okay, so whenever you see Baal hyphen and then another name, it's a form of Baal worship. So the word Baal is a general term for Lord, but then it's associated with another word. For instance, Baal Barith means Lord of the... Uh, Palms, I think. Lord of, it's associated with the palm tree or the fir tree. There's Lord of, there's different forms of Baal worship, which means Lord of covenants, Lord of, um, palm, of, um, Lord of the dunghill, all kinds of different ones, right? But whatever the name is that associated with it, it's a different form of Baal worship. So Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, started worshiping Baal, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, take all the heads of the people, and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. 
And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one of his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. And you might say, Oh, that's so terrible. What a cruel God. Look at God's commanding genocide. Blah, 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 blah. No, it's called a punishment for a sick, disgusting idolatry that involves them burning their own babies alive in the fire. What would you do right now if some parent took their baby and burned it alive in the fire? You'd say, string that sucker up and put him to death. You do the same thing, but you want to accuse God of genocide here when when he says, kill them all. Why? Because it's absolutely evil what they were doing. All right, let's uh, continue here. Judges chapter 10, verse 6. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. Okay, so that th- those that suffix of the of the two letters I M, Baal Im, Im is used to denote plurality. Okay, it's the plural form of a word. So when it says Baalim, it means all the different various forms of Baal worship. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam and Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria and the gods of Zidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the children of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines and forsook the Lord and served not him. Okay, so they Israel did what? They did evil and they served Baal. Okay, they served Baal Peor, Balaam. And then here's another one. 1 Kings 16, verse 29. In the 30 and 8th year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab... The son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal. Okay, so so um, this is the famous woman Jezebel, the, the wife of Ahab, the most wicked woman in history. Okay, so he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal. And Ethbal, what is that? It's, he was a priest of Baal, a worshiper of Baal. And Jezebel was a worshiper of Baal. So he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Okay, so Ahab and Jezebel established Baal worship in Israel. And then uh, the the, Je- the prophets of Baal ate at the table of Jezebel. Baal worship, they caused to prosper all throughout that land. So there it was, worship of Baal. And then Elijah had a showdown with the prophets of Baal, okay? Uh, he told them, you call upon your God and, they, and I'll call upon mine. They called upon their God over and over and over again for a fire to come down from heaven and consume their sacrifice. They were screaming, they were taking stones and cutting their arms and all this other stuff. Nothing ever happened. Then Elijah prepared the sacrifice, put the wad, uh, the wood there. He sprinkled it up, poured a ton of water on it to make sure nothing was dry. Then he called upon God to consume it. And God sent fire down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice, proving that God is Lord. He's the real God. He's the one that they need to serve. And then all the prophets of Baal were put to death. Okay? So that was the showdown that he had. Baal worship is... Wicked. God condemns it. And it's associated with baby sacrifice. And they used to, uh, Molech and Baal worship. We didn't put in, uh, yeah, I didn't put in the other ones. But there's references to, um, look in the Bible. There's references to Molech worship. And the, the Molech was a, um, 
Now, Alex Jones here deceived you guys, okay? If you ever watched The Infiltration of Bohemian Grove and you ever heard of this, go look it up, okay? Bohemian Grove is a place in California near San Francisco where all the elite New World Order people go and meet in the woods and they have weird rituals and it's a bunch of gay stuff. Even President Richard Nixon said it was... uh, he used some curse words, but he said it was gay. It was one of the gayest things he ever saw, okay? Homosexual stuff going on up there. But anyways, out there, Alex Jones supposedly infiltrated the place. He got video footage of it, and inside, there's a giant stone owl, and they're doing a, a ritual there called the cremation of care. It's supposed to be their burning away of their cares for the year and blah, 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 whatever. It's a it's a farce, Okay. And, and Alex Jones said, this big stone owl idol that they're worshiping is Molech. It's Molech. It's Molech. It's Molech. It's not Molech. Go look up Molech right now. What do you, And what pops up? Google it right now. What do you see? Do you see an owl? Go ahead. I'll give you time. Go ahead. Molech. Type in Moloch or Molech. Go ahead. What do you see? You see an owl? No, you don't. What do you see? You see a bull. Because Moloch worship was a bull. And they light a fire in the belly of the of the the bull god, and his arms would be outstretched like this. And they put the baby after the after the arms were searing white hot. They put the baby on it, and the baby would burn alive, or it roll into the down the arms into the stomach and burn alive. And they had to play in the valley of the son of Hinnom. They would have these fires burning, and they'd have drums playing to cover up the screams of the infants, so the mothers didn't hear them. And, and try to stop it as they offered their babies up for sacrifice. Okay. That's Moloch worship. Okay. And why is Alex Jones saying it's Moloch when it's an owl? It's a bull. Now, I might have a theory for you. It's more than a theory. Now look up the goddess Minerva. What do you see? Well, you might see something that looks like the Statue of Liberty. That's another show for another day, but the Statue of Liberty was made by Freemasons. It was a gift by French, I believe, Freemasons to American Freemasons. And uh, that's a, that's a, um, that's a goddess, a pagan goddess. And um, that would be Isis, but, or one of the different forms. But nevertheless, Minerva, which is another form, is associated with the owl. Go look. Look at all the different images that pop up and associate with, with uh, uh, Minerva, and it's an owl. And now you're probably like, Nate, yeah, so what? Who cares? What does that mean? It's associated with Rome. It's a Roman goddess. Now, why would Alex Jones try to hide a connection, which was so easy to look up which god it was that they're worshiping? Why would he get that wrong on purpose over and over and over again for years? Maybe it's because he was doing it on purpose. And what was he hiding? He was hiding a connection to Rome. Rome, Rome, Rome. All these roads lead back to Rome, as they say. And uh, I'm not going to go any further down that rabbit trail today, but I just wanted to drop that for you. Just a little crumb. You can chase that if you want. You can look up the Roman connection to uh, Bohemian Grove. All right. All right. Now that we looked at Baal worship, let's continue. So Nimrod was deified as Baal, involved human sacrifice, very bad stuff. Now we'll look at Tammuz. 
Tammuz, who was that? Then we have Tammuz, who is supposed to be Nimrod's son. And also a reincarnated version of himself, of, Tam- of Nimrod. Tammuz is the Babylonian equ- equivalent of the Egyptian god Horus. Tammuz, also known as Dumuzid, was the consort of his mother, Samirmus, also known as Ishtar or Inanna, depending on the culture. There's the uh, Akkadians, the Sumerians, the Babylonians. They all had different names, okay? Same person. Tammuz was the consort of his mother, Samir, consort of his mother, Samirmus. The Egyptian version is Osiris and Isis have their son, Horus. Same thing. The Greek equivalent for Tammuz is Adonis with his lover, Aphrodite. All right, so those are the mentions of all those gods. Now look at the mention of Tammuz in the book of Ezekiel, okay? This all has to do with the conspiracy. This, this is Nimrod's son, right? Reincarnated Nimrod. Religious and political leaders in Israel worshiping false gods in secret. Whoa, what does that sound like? Religious and political leaders in Israel worshiping false gods in secret. Now, what does that sound like? Oh, wait, what were we just talking about? Bohemian Grove, that's right. All right, now let's continue here. Ezekiel chapter 8. Oh, boy. That's right. We can read it together. Come on now. Ezekiel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Check this out. No, seriously, there's a bunch of awesome stuff in here. And it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in mine house, and the elders of Judah sat before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell up there upon me. And I beheld, and lo, a likeness as the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his loins even downward, fire, and from his loins even upward, as the appearance of brightness, as the color of amber. And he put forth the form of an hand and took me by a lock of mine head. And the spirit lifted me up from uh, between the earth and the heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the inner gate that looketh toward the north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provoketh to jealousy. Now, some people speculate with much circumstantial evidence that it seems most likely that the image of jealousy is an obelisk. Okay, an obelisk. What's an obelisk? It's what you see as the Washington Monument, okay? It's a phallic symbol. What happened is the story is that Nimrod was killed and um, he was chopped up into a bunch of different pieces and scattered around and then his wife Samirmas found all the pieces except for the phallus, okay? And that's why they deify that. They use that as the, as the symbol, as the statue uh, to represent that missing member of, of Nimrod and also, they're involved in sex worship and sun worship, as I said before, okay? So that's why they have the obelisk is tied together with the image of jealousy, Nimrod worship, stuff like that. Verse 4, And behold, the glory of the Lord, of the God of Israel was there, according to the vision that I saw in the plain. Then said he unto me, Son of man, lift up thine eyes now the way toward the north. So I lifted up mine eyes the way toward the north. And behold, northward at the gate of the altar this image of jealousy in the entry, okay? So at the gate, this is where God's temple is, by the way, the image of jealousy right there, boom. He said, furthermore unto me, son of man, seest thou what they do? Even the great abominations that the house of Israel committeth here, that I should go far off from my sanctuary, but turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations. So God calls these things, this idolatry, an abomination, What's an abomination? It's something that's extremely detestable, hated with extreme hatred. It's something that's a stench in God's nostrils, makes him sick. Verse 7, And he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, and behold, a hole in the wall. 
And then he said unto me, son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I had digged in the wall, behold the door. Dig. He told Ezekiel to dig. Why did he tell him to dig? Because sometimes you got to dig in order to find the truth because the truth is hidden. And when people are worshiping and doing wicked things in secret, you have to dig to find the evidence to expose it and bring it to the light. When he digged in the wall, behold the door in verse nine. And he said unto me, go in and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. Verse 10. So I went in and saw and behold every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. And there stood before them 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel. These are supposed to be people of God, the ancients, the elders in Israel. The leaders, the religious leaders, and political too. And in the midst of them stood Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Okay, so we have the religious leaders secretly worshiping false gods, idols, and abominable evil things in secret. Sound familiar? Verse 12, And then he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the chambers of his imagery? For they say, The Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. They were lying to themselves, deceiving themselves, saying, Oh, God is not going to see what we're going to do. We're hiding in here. Yeah, you're going to hide right in God's temple. That's a great plan, guys. Verse 13, And he said also unto me, Turn thee yet again. And thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. And he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, what was there? There sat women weeping for Tammuz. So there's that name Tammuz used right in the Bible. The son of Nimrod. Okay. Nimrod reincarnated, they say. And women in the Lord's house weeping for Tammuz. And we're going to look at exactly why they were doing that. It's a pagan ritual right after this, okay? Verse 15, And then he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men, with their backs toward the north temple of the Lord. I'm sorry, with their backs toward the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, a lot of times they have um, temple Masonic temples facing the east, and uh, they have the Order of the Eastern Star as a Masonic order for women. And then uh, what do we have? Oh yeah, that's right. We have um, what does it say here? Their faces toward the east, and they worship the sun towards the east. Now, what's that custom and that tradition that they have in churches around Easter time? Oh yeah, the sunrise service. Awkward. Kind of weird, isn't it? You say, no, it has to do with the resurrection. Sorry. Bunnies and eggs ain't got nothing to do with Jesus. All right. And they worship the sun towards the east. Now, was God mad about this? All they're doing is worshiping the sun, man. It's just nature worship. We're just peace loving. We're just peace and loving, man. Come on. What did God say about it? They worshiped the sun. Verse 17 said, says, And then he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Here's the question. Is it a light thing 
to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? Is it a big deal? Is it a light thing? Is it eh, no big deal? Is it light? Yeah, it is a big deal. For they have filled the land with violence and have returned to provoke me to anger. And lo, they put the branch to their nose. That's another pagan ritual, putting the branch to the nose. Therefore, well, now what's God's response to all this pagan worship, which they're hiding in his temple in secret? Verse 18, therefore, will I also deal in mine fury and fury. Mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet will I not hear them. Wow. That made God really angry. Why? Because it's wicked. God says it's an abomination. It's filthy. It's nasty idolatry. And what did God say that to? Women weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz! Son of Nimrod. Who's Nimrod? The one who the Masons say they descend from. The first grandmaster of Freemasonry. So the son of the first grandmaster of Freemasonry is being worshipped by these women here and God says it's an abomination. Uh Uh-oh. Now let's get a little more insight into why women were were sitting weeping for Tammuz. Commentator Adam Clark says this, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. This was Adonis, right? That was one of his names. That was his name in uh, Greece. This was Adonis, as we have seen. He is fabled to have been a beautiful youth, beloved by Venus, and killed by a wild boar. So he was killed by a wild boar. He's killed by a pig. Tammuz is killed by a pig. Hey, what do you eat at Easter dinner? Ham. What's ham? A pig. You think there's no connection? Absolutely, there's a connection. The pig killed uh, Tammuz, so we eat the pig on Easter dinner. Isn't that cute? He is fabled to have been uh, been a beautiful youth, beloved by Venus, and killed by a wild boar in Mount Lebanon, whence springs the river Adonis, which was fabled to run blood at his festival in August. The women of Phoenicia, Assyria, and Judea worshipped him as dead. With deep lamentation, there were weeping, weeping lamentations, wearing priyapi and other obscene images all the while. And they prostituted themselves in honor of this idol. Okay. Oh, you didn't know that, did you? This is so, not only would would they weep for, they said that uh, they would continue this myth of, of Tammuz and when they said he was dead, they would weep for him. And then after they were done, they would celebrate and they'd prostitute themselves out to just random dudes around the street. Yeah, that's what they would do. Okay? Worshippers of Tammuz. Having for some time mourned for them, then they then they then suppose supposed to him revivified and broke out into the most extravagant rejoicings. So when does this worship occur? I'll tell you when. The winter solstice. That's the shortest day of the year. That's when the sun dies, sun worship. Tammuz dies. He goes into the underworld during the winter. Then he pops back up. He's revivified, re-resurrected in spring at Easter. The springtime, uh, the spring equinox. Springtime rituals, fertility rituals, sun worship, sex worship, pagan rituals associated with Tammuz. That's how it's done. That's the history of it. Those are the facts. 
of the appearance of the river at this season, Mr. Mondrell thus speaks. We had the good fortune to see what is the foundation of the opinion which Lucian relates, that this stream at certain seasons of the year, especially about the Feast of Adonis, is of a bloody color, proceeding from a kind of sympathy, as the heathens imagined, from the death of Adonis, who was killed by a wild boar in the mountain out of which this stream issues. Something like this we saw actually come to pass, for the water was stained to a surprising redness, and as we observed in traveling, had stained the sea a great way into a reddish hue. This was no doubt occasioned by a red ochre, over which the river ran with violence at this time of its increase. What's uh, ochre? I think I looked this up the other day. It's not okra, that's a food, okay? Which is something I don't eat, okay? You might eat okra, but I don't. An earthy pigment containing ferric oxide, typically with clay varying from light yellow to brown or red, okay? So what he was saying is there is this ochre pigment in there, in the river, and at certain times of the year, it would turn red. And the pagans were like, it's the blood of Tammuz, look at it! You know, it's not, okay. And who knows what else could have been going on there. But anyways, connection to sun worship. Here's what Albert Barnes says. There is a connection of Tammuz to uh, sun worship. At the same time, there was a connection between this and the sun worship in that the decline of the sun and the decline of nature might be alike represented by the death of Adonis. The excitement attendant upon these extravagances of alternate wailing and exultation were in a complete accordance with the character of nature worship, which for this reason was so popular in the East, especially with the women, uh, and led by inevitable consequences to unbridled license and excess. Such was in Ezekiel's day one of the most detestable forms of idolatry, okay? So it was involved with sun worship, sex worship, nature worship. Nature worship? What are you talking about, man? It's an earth religion. What does that sound like? Sounds like Wicca. The worshippers of nature. They get the four elements, earth, wind, fire, water, okay? That's a band too. A really bad band. Okay? I'm talking about worldly standards. <laughs> okay? All right, now, um, check this out, though. They are nature worshipers? What do you mean they're nature worshipers? Did you know the Bible said, says that it, that's exactly what happened? That's what, that's what lost people do. The Gentiles, the pagans. You know what it says about them? It says of this. It says of this. Uh, <laughs> see, I just messed up. All right, now. But maybe I didn't, because that was funny. All right. Let's get serious here. Look at this. It says, because that when they knew God, they glo this is Romans chapter one, by the way, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image of made like unto corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and to creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Okay. 
They worship the creature, worshiped and served the creature more than creator. Nature worshipers serving the create. They're worshiping. They're serving, worshiping and serving the creature. What's the creature? The creation. The sun, the moon, the stars, the nature worship, the false gods. Okay, the creation. They're worshiping the creation instead of the creator. Okay, you're changing the truth of God into a lie. Professing yourself, oh, we're the wise ones. We have the ancient religion of paganism. You've changed the truth of God into a lie. Okay? Cut your hair. Put on some deodorant. Take a shower. Get out of the woods. Okay? Stop being a pagan. I know you can't just stop being a pagan, but you need to repent, believe the gospel, and be saved, okay? God will give you a new heart and new desires, okay? And then you'll actually want to live differently, okay? Because by the power of God, it'll supernaturally transform you into a new person, okay? Okay. I just want to put that out there in case we got one of them, one of them nature-worshiping pagans listening, because they do, apparently. All right, let's, um, only a couple things left here. Let me do this real quick, real quick. Okay, no conspiracy in the Bible, some say. Oh, there's no conspiracy. It literally says the word conspiracy in the Bible. All right, Ezekiel chapter 22. So by the way, before we go to this, as you can see, wow, the Freemason, Freemasonry shows the conspiracy of the New World Order Connection throughout history, all the way, they say the Grandmaster is uh, Nimrod, the first Grandmaster, Tubal Cain, and especially Nimrod, and then his son was Tammuz. It's all associated with Baal worship and Tammuz. It's all an abomination. God condemns it. Um, connection to Egypt is condemned. It's all evil stuff. And these are the ones that are calling for the New World Order. Okay? Make no mistake about it. That's what this is, all right? So we just exposed that. Now let's continue on here. Ezekiel chapter 22, starting verse 25. There is a conspiracy. There it is. There is a conspiracy. So if you say there's no conspiracy, God says there is a conspiracy. Okay? You can say, you can quote to someone, some Christian who tries to say there's no such thing as conspiracies. You can say, thus saith the Lord, Ezekiel 22, 25, there is a conspiracy. Okay? They do exist. And what's this one? There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof. Ooh, a conspiracy of religious leaders? Really? Isn't that interesting? Conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof, like a roaring lion, ravening. What did it say about a roaring lion? Satan is as a roaring lion, ravening the prey. They have devoured souls. They have taken the treasure and precious things. They have made her many widows in the midst thereof. Her priests have violated my law and have profaned mine holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and profane. Yep, that's what we get the pastors doing today. They put no difference between the holy and profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean and have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths and I am profaned among them. Okay, they don't teach the difference between the unclean and the clean. Nothing about holiness. Her prince, they don't preach against sin. Her princes in the midst thereof are like the wolves ravening the prey to shed blood and to destroy souls to get dishonest gain. They're doing it for the money. Wolves in sheep's clothing doing it for the money. 
And her prophets have daubed them with untempered mortar, seeing vanity and divining lies unto them. Witchcraft. It's saying, thus saith the Lord God, when the Lord hath not spoken. Say, I'm called of God. I'm a preacher of God. Thus saith the Lord. And the Lord hath not spoken, has not called them. They don't have the authority. They don't have the doctrine. They just say they do. Well, that doesn't make it so. Okay? When the Lord has spoken, you will know it. Because it matches up with this book right here. The doctrine. All right. Amen. Verse 29, the people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and the needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me in the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Therefore have I poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord God. Okay? He sought for a man among them and could find none. I found none. None to make up the hedge. None to stand in the gap before me in the land. Just looking for one righteous man. Just one. To stand in the gap. Make up the hedge. Between and to stem the tide of evil and the judgment of God. And there wasn't even one. Not even one in that whole place back then. And that's where we're getting to be right now. Very, very few who are willing to stand up for the truth regardless of the consequence without compromise. Very, very few. But nevertheless, God always leaves a remnant. Let's continue. There is a conspiracy of the prophets, of her prophets in the midst thereof. There it is. All right, so now let's continue. So we look back at the beginning of the conspiracy with Lucifer and the Garden of Eden, and then we saw uh, the Tower of Babel. We saw Nimrod and all this other stuff. We saw all the beginning of the conspiracy. We saw all the way up into Ezekiel in his time, the conspiracy throughout time. Now we're going to see a panoramic view of this one world order conspiracy as described in um, the book of Daniel. All right. So the king of Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Okay. And he had a dream of a statue. It was head of gold, chest and arms of uh, silver, waist of brass, legs of iron. Okay. And feet of iron and clay. Now these, this was a dream about four kingdoms. And we're going to learn about that, who these four kingdoms were. And is it, it's a, it's a panoramic view of the conspiracy throughout history. Because where does the conspiracy originate? Remember, what did we say? Babylon. Babylon and Egypt, okay? And um, and then these gods were worshipped under different names in different cultures. But let's look at this. First, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 2, starting at verse 31. Thou, O king, this is Daniel talking, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image, This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and arms of silver, his belly and thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. That's the image. Thou sawest sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them in pieces. Okay, so that's the dream. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, the gold broken in pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer 
threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a great art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwelt, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven have he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. Okay? So he's saying, you're the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon, the king of Babylon and Babylon, you're the head of gold. Okay? You're the first kingdom. You are the originator of this conspiracy. Okay? This is the mystery of iniquity. It's, remember, it's one image, four kingdoms that's destroyed by a stone. Let's look at it. Verse 39, and after this shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron. For as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it the strength of iron. And for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron, part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Very interesting verse there. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that stone, that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God hath made it known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof is sure. 100% true, will come to pass, and it did. Okay? So, what does this image mean? Well, he first said, the head of gold is a kingdom, and who is it? It's this kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, which is Babylon. So, without a doubt, the head of gold is Babylon. Well, guess what? We only got three kingdoms left after that. Who were they? Who were the world kingdoms that ruled the earth? Easy. Next one was Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome. Okay? And then the most controversial would be the last one. The fourth kingdom transforms because it has 10 horns and then three horns are removed and a little horn pops up out of the other little horns. This is the other dream that's about the four beasts. And that comes, so the so this um, little horn comes out of the fourth kingdom, which is Rome. And that's the Antichrist power, which is, I believe I will show in future shows, the Roman Catholic Church. All right? Which is persecuted more, killed more Christians than anyone in history. Now, we're not getting, I'm sorry, but we're not getting into that today. And we could go real in deep, in depth into that. But the point is, you just want to see the conspiracy here. Okay. So we got one image, gold, silver, brass, iron. Okay. And it's all one, you see what I'm saying? It's all the one spirit, right? Because it's an image, it's idolatry. It's associated with false God worship, which goes to, which is associated with who wants, who wants idolatry? The devil. Okay. So the devil's mystery of iniquity, this one image 
goes through Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Okay? And so their idolatry, their false gods, they have the same gods under different names in different cultures. Like we said, it's, it's absolutely in mainstream historians say Tammuz, which is from Babylon, is the uh, Adonis worshipped by the Greeks. It's the same God. It's just a retelling of the same story. So it originated in Babylon and Egypt. Then it's retold in Medo-Persia, retold in Greece, retold in Rome, and then retold in the Catholic Church. Oh yeah, they're filled with idolatry and paganism. Sun worship, sex worship, it's all there, all in the Catholic Church. They preserved, the Catholic Church has preserved Babylonian witchcraft. It's all in there, in their statues, in their rituals, in their paintings, in their artworks, all over the place. Okay? So that's the conspiracy throughout many hundreds of years. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, it went through there, and then now the war today. What's the war today? It's not a war against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6, 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against all the wiles of the devil. Submit yourselves, therefore, unto God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Time to fight. Because we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. You're paying attention to the politicians and the people and blah, blah, blah. But it's against the principalities, the powers, the rules of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. It's, it's the, the spirit. The spirits behind the people is the conspiracy. And they've been working all the way back from Babylon and Egypt, all throughout their Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And up until now, they have been working for this conspiracy, longing for the day when they would be able to get back to the place that they're at with Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. And guess what, friends? They are very close to that, the culmination of the conspiracy. These principalities and powers, these unclean spirits, these fallen angels led by Lucifer, they're working for the culmination of that. What is it? What is the final goal of the New World Order? It's this. The Antichrist, his one world kingdom, the false prophet, the image of the beast, and the mark of the beast. Okay? So let me just tell you right now before I read this. The New World Order which is being talked about by all these high-level politicians and media and banking and all, whoever it is, whenever they talk about New World Order, they want a one-world kingdom and uh, uh, government and, and um, a government and, and bank and military and, all, and system and all this stuff, even one-world religion. They're all saying, it'd be great, it'd be great, it'd be for peace, it'd be peaceful, it'd be great, right? Why do they all want it? For this guy right here, the Antichrist, the beast. That's who the New World Order is for. And all of humanity has been, has been preparing for this. They've been preparing humanity through indoctrination over decades and hundreds of years. But especially recently, in the past hundred years, they've been bombarding people with predictive program, programming and symbolism 
to prepare people to worship the beast. All right, so let's look at what the Bible specifically says the new world order will be. It is specifically described in Revelation chapter 13 of the Bible, which, by the way, has 18 verses. Three times six is eight. Six, six, six. I'm sorry, is 18. Okay, 18 divided by three is six. All right, verse one of Revelation 13. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and we're almost done. I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Okay, this is the beast. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and seat and great authority. Okay, now earlier in the Bible, the Bible clearly says that a beast is a king or a kingdom. Okay, it's a king or a kingdom. It's defined as that in Daniel. You go look at the book of Daniel and you can't just come up with your own interpretation. A beast is a king or a kingdom. Okay, so this king, this beast as characteristics from all the other kingdoms, the leopard, the bear, the mount, the lion, those it's from the other dream of Nebuchadnezzar um, or wh- whatever king it was in Daniel about the four kingdoms. He has characteristics of all the other kingdoms absorbed in him. Okay. And the dragon, who's the dragon? The Bible says the dragon is the devil. Okay. So the dragon gave him his power, his seat and great authority. Satan gives the antichrist his power, his seat and authority. And I saw one of his heads, the Antichrist, one of his heads as if it were wounded to death, as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Okay? So, there will be a time, you know, there, there's two fulfillments of this prophecy, okay, in Daniel and Re- Revelation. This is, this is hard for people to understand. They go, well, it's either futurism or it's historicism, and they both say they're both heretics, okay? But I think there's dual fulfillment. There's historical fulfillment and there's futurist fulfillment, both, okay? The Bible talks about that. And there's many times in throughout the Bible, if you study prophecy and you study prophetic language where there's an immediate fulfillment and a future fulfillment, sometimes there's partial fulfillment in the future. Like for instance, the book of, jo- of Joel, there's a prophecy that was fulfilled, that was said in Joel that was partially fulfilled in the book of Acts, but is not going to be f- fully fulfilled until the book of Revelation, Okay. You got to study the Bible. All right. So there's a, there's, there, there could have been a historical wound of the deadly, of one of the heads, which means one of the kingdoms, but also there will be the Antichrist receiving a deadly wound so that he is dead and then he resurrects. It follows the same pattern as Tammuz, Nimrod, and all these other, and Horus, and all this stuff. And it's a counterfeit of Jesus Christ. Okay, because Antichrist doesn't just mean against, it means substitute in place of. Okay, so he's going to have this death and resurrection and they worshipped. So after this, they wonder after the beast. They, they're wondering after him, worshipping him. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying who was like unto the beast and who was able to make war with him. Okay, so in the future, in this one world government, new world order, most of the world will worship the dragon, who is Satan, so they'll worship Satan and they will worship the Antichrist. And they'll say, who's like unto him? He's the best. Verse 5, And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. 
That's three and a half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and then that dwell in heaven. Okay, so he's clearly against God. He's blaspheming God. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given unto him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. We're not arguing about the preacher rapture today, but he makes war against saints, which are Christians. So there you go. Verse 8, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. All that dwell on earth shall worship him. Okay? All will worship him. This is what you guys got to understand. Whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. To only those whose names are written in the book of the life of the Lamb. They're the only ones that won't worship the beast. Everyone else in the world will worship the Antichrist. The whole world. Okay? The tower the modern-day Tower of Babel, and the reincarnated Nimrod. If any man have an ear, I don't mean literal reincarnation, I just mean it's the fulfillment of his story. If any man have an ear to hear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. So this, this is the... False prophet, okay? Um, he's known as the, the false prophet. And then uh, also other names that the Antichrist goes by is the man of sin, the son of perdition. All right, let's continue. So the, another beast comes up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and he spake as a dragon. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Okay, so false prophet's job is to cause everyone to worship the beast. And he doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. So what is he doing? Counterfeiting miracles, just like the sorcerers did in Egypt. It's coming back again, except in a worldwide scale. Those powerful sorcerers in Egypt are going to be doing the same thing. The false prophet is going to be a powerful sorcerer in most powerful one in the world besides the Antichrist, so that he's going to make fire come down from heaven on the earth, just like Elisha did. Verse 14, And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. Miracles that are going to be performed in the future will deceive people. So many people will be deceived by these miracles, they will not be able to resist it because they're not grounded in the word of God. They don't believe the Bible. So you get deceived by miracles. You will get deceived by miracles. Okay. And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. So so now he's saying, let's make a big old image, a big statue to the beast, the Antichrist. And he had power to give life and image unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Okay, so he's actually going to make this idol and make, through the power of his miracle witchcraft, make this statue to speak and that people should worship the image of the beast and the beast. And if you don't, you're put to death. Same thing happened in Daniel. They said, when the music plays, you bow down to the beast. The Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, nope, we're not doing it. So they threw him in the furnace of fire. But Jesus was in there with them. They didn't get burned. They didn't die. Praise the Lord. All right. Okay, sorry, verse, verse 15, okay, verse 16, and he causeth all, 
both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is six hundred, three score and six. A score is twenty, so three scores is sixty. That means six hundred sixty-six, six six six. Okay? The number of the beast is six six six. It's the number of a man, the man of sin, the Antichrist. Okay? So all the world is going to be in a one world system that no man on the earth can buy or sell except that you have the mark of the beast. So what does that mean? There's a one world system. There's a one world economic system. Okay. And for you to be able to buy or sell, you have to have a mark of worship in your right hand or your forehead. Okay. So this implies a one world government a one world bank and currency, a one world system, a one world religion where everyone's worshiping one God, the Antichrist, false God. Okay. This is the one world government. This is the new world order. This is what all these guys have been talking about. This is what the Freemasons are working towards. This is what the pyramid and the all-seeing eye in the back of the dollar bill is talking about. Talking about the kingdom of the Antichrist. And he's that capstone on that pyramid. And it's going to come one day soon. It's coming soon. Okay. The Antichrist will be here. And that's the new world order. Okay, they're preparing for Antichrist. And guess what? The Bible prophesied that this would happen almost 2,000 years ago. Okay, that it was going to happen. And we're seeing all the signs right now that it is going to happen. It's happening right now. People are almost ready to worship the Antichrist. Great apostasy has happened. All right, now let's see the end because this is the good news. We know the end because we know the word of God. The final battle, the New World Order defeated, okay? We can't defeat the New World Order through uh, militias and guns and, and however else we think we're going to, expo- uh, you know, exposing it and stuff like that. We should expose it as much as we can, but the ultimate goal is it's a spiritual war and people need to know the gospel. They need to be born again. They need to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, That's the only way to defeat the New World Order now because physically the only one who can defeat the New World Order and will defeat it is Jesus Christ. And let's look at that moment right now. Revelation 19 verse 11. And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Jesus Christ is judging? Whoa, what about judge not? And he's making war Yeah, that's the Jesus of the Bible, okay? Get it right. He's talking about Jesus. Verse 12, his eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the capital W word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's Jesus Christ. 
And I saw an angel standing in the sun and cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls, these are the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of, my, of all men, both free and bonds, both small and great. Okay, now pay attention here. Verse 19, Revelation 19, 19 is the culmination of, of all 6,000 years of man's history of the conspiracy, it all comes to a head at this one point in Revelation 19, 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. This is the culmination of the conspiracy. The Antichrist so deceives the kings of the earth, the leaders of the world and their armies deceives them so bad that they actually think they can fight against Jesus Christ and defeat him. Okay? And they tried, as Jesus returns, they are trying to fight against Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate end of the conspiracy. And what did it say in Psalm 2? The kings of the earth take counsel together and they set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the culmination of it right there. But what happens in verse 20? And the beast was taken, and with them the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which were, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were uh, cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Well, that wasn't much of a battle, was it? He took the Antichrist and the false prophet, said, Jesus took him, said, here you go. And he threw him in the lake of fire. That's the end of it. Not much of a battle, was it? And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Okay? Uh, Jesus, Jesus Christ kills them all with the sword out of his mouth, and there's a giant pile of dead bodies, and all these birds that were gathered together for the supper are eating these dead bodies. That's the God of the Bible. That's Jesus Christ. He's the one that you must fear. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You don't even begin to have a little bit of wisdom or knowledge until you fear God. And one of the messages of the three angels in the book of Revelation, he says, fear God and give glory to him. Okay? That's the everlasting gospel. Fear God and give glory to him. Repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ because he's coming soon. And you better be on the right side. Okay? Now, for a final warning. Gut. A couple passages for you. The warning. Revelation 14, 9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever received the mark of his name. Okay? If you worship the beast, if you take the mark of the, the beast, you worship the, his image. Okay? You will go to the lake of fire forever, okay? 
And the Bible says the lake of fire is conscious torment in fire and brimstone for eternity. That's what it is. You're not destroyed. You're not annihilated. You don't black out. You don't burn up into ashes. You're consciously tormented forever because you had all the chances over and over and over and over again throughout your whole life and you rejected Jesus Christ over and over and over and over again. You rejected God's mercy in this life. You rejected his grace and you chose to worship the Antichrist. All right. And here's another warning. Okay. Very strong warning against being deceived. Second Thessalonians chapter one. I'm sorry. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse one. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by his letter from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. Don't let anyone deceive you. For that day shall not come. When? The day of Christ. Except there come a falling away first and apostasy where all the false doctrine leavens all the churches and they turn to trash. And which is happening right now, falling away, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sinneth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was with you, I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity, there's that conspiracy, doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let, until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked, who's that wicked, their Antichrist, be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. When Jesus Christ comes, he's going to destroy him, throw him in the lake of fire. Verse 9, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power, and pay attention, The Antichrist comes when? After the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. That's when the Antichrist is going to come, after the whole world's been deceived by all these signs and lying wonders. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Okay, if you don't have a love for the truth, you won't be saved. Okay, if you'd rather hear lovely little lies to make you feel good, you're not going to be saved. You have to have a love for the truth. That's being a real truther. They receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, because they didn't have a love for the truth, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They had pleasure in sin. And it always boils down to this. You love people don't say they don't believe in God or they worship false gods. They don't do that because there's no evidence for God. Okay. They do that because they love their sin. They hate God. They don't want to be held accountable to God. They don't want to change. They love their sin. They have pleasure in unrighteousness. They don't want the truth because they don't want to be held accountable for it. So they say, oh, there's no God. Oh, I don't believe the God of the Bible. I'll worship some other God because they just want to live in sin because they love their sin. And that's always the case, the bottom line. Every single time they are without excuse. Okay. 
This is a warning to everyone listening. Four last verses to end this with. What should we do? First, Mark 16, 15. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The most important thing in the end times now is preaching the gospel to every creature. I don't care how you do it. Do it on the internet. Get some tracks. Make sure you get some tracks and some good high quality ones. By the way, I got some coming soon I can get for you um, that will be made available. I'm going to make a video about it. Okay, get tracks in people's hands. Leave them, leave them places. Talk to, witness to people one-on-one. Preach in the street. I believe in that as long as it's done the right way. Whatever it is, preach the gospel to every creature any way you can. Okay? And then here's what, what gospel. Here's salvation, Acts 20, 21. Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to repent of a life of sin and rebellion against God. Turn your back on it. You're sorry for your sin. You hate your sin. You turn your back on a life of sin. And then you turn to Lord Jesus Christ. You put your faith in him, that he died for your sin, that he took the punishment that you deserve. You put your faith in him and what he did for you, that he died in your place. He died for your sins, that he was buried, that for three days he rose Again, the third day, he is risen now, and he ever liveth to make intercession. He's ready to save you. When you repent, put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be born again. Jesus said you must be born again. Being born again is supernaturally transformed into a new creature, where God gives you a new heart with new desires. That's what you need to do. Get saved if you're not saved. Okay? You need to understand you're a sinner for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You've lied. You've stolen. You've committed adultery. You've lusted. You've committed idolatry. You've blasphemed. You've taken the Lord's name in vain. You've sinned. Drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. Idolaters, adulterers, sodomites, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? So that's the message. Go into all the world and preach that message to every creature. And then for you Christians, remember this. 1 Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Be serious. Take this war seriously. Take the Christian life seriously. Be sober. Be serious about it. Make sure you're praying, you're watching, you're alert, you're not being deceived. We're surrounded by deception and the fiery darts are flying everywhere. You better be alert. Watch. And finally, Ephesians 5.11, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Don't have any fellowship with evil, unfruitful works of darkness. If you got it in your house, you got evil things to do with witchcraft and the New World Order, kick it out of your house. Stop watching movies that are indoctrinating you into the New World Order philosophy and music that you're pumping in your head and a bunch of junk that just wastes your time. Don't have any fellowship with it, but rather reprove them. Expose it. Don't just separate it. Then not tell other people, this is bad. This is why it's bad. The Bible says this. Let me show you this. Let me show you in their own words what they say. Let me just show you the definition. Expose it. Reprove it. Show why it's bad. Offer the evidence the best that you can. The best quality research you can. This is how we fight. And you must fight. There are very few who will fight. The right way. According to the word of God. Well, hope you enjoyed the show today. I know it was a little bit long, but I couldn't take anything out.
But uh, all this information, like I said, there's much evidence. This is honestly just a basic overview of the New World Order. Mostly what it shows in the Bible, but from their own writings, their own audio clips, from their own mouth, you heard it. The Freemasons, the Egyptian mystery religions, the kings of the earth, they've all been working together for hundreds of years for a New World Order to bring in the Antichrist. But Jesus Christ is that stone cut without hands that will come and smash that image that Nebuchadnezzar saw. And it will turn into a mountain and fill the whole earth. And he will reign on this earth, the millennial kingdom, for a thousand years. And then after that, there will be a new heaven and a new earth forevermore. And if you want to be in that kingdom, make sure you're saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? Because you can know all this stuff about conspiracy and the New World Order, but if you don't have that, you got nothing. Okay? So I hope you learned a lot today. I hope that uh, this was educational to you. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Maybe if you're listening to this. And uh, if you got any questions, please send it to me uh, through email, treadingserpents at hotmail.com. Uh, thank you for watching. Please like, put a like down there, share, subscribe. Please leave comments. That helps to boost up the video. Try to get this out here so people can see. You got to get the truth out there. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it. Thank you. So um, pay, stay tuned. There's going to be more shows coming soon. And uh, that's it. Thank you for watching. God bless you. Have a good night.